0: I'm Kelly O'Hara. You're listening to Pod Clubhouse.
1: Pod
2: Clubhouse.
1: What are you doing here? And the shoes, what was that? Because we're colored, we must be poor. I loaned you train
3: fare. I made a stupid assumption.
1: <laughs> and you just showed up at my parents' home. What's so wrong about that?
3: My aunt lets you live at her house.
1: Lexi. me. I work there. I know. No, you don't know anything about me, about my life, about my situation. I live in a different country from the one you know. Look, I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. Just stop thinking you're really my friend.
3: Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight, we're discussing episode four
4: of the Gilded Age, which was called A Long Ladder. It was written by Julian Fellows and directed once again by Sally Richardson-Whitfield.
3: Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on the Facebook group, the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses, HBO series. Join us over there because definitely we have so many conversations about the historical portions that... I think is really making everybody's brains like get all tickled.
4: I think so too. And we have actually a nice group of people having some good conversations about from everything from the costuming down to how Baransky kills it every damn week with her lines and <laughs> just just a good little group Absolutely. going over there. It's, it's a private do. group. It's a private group. So people can find the group, but you can't see what you're posting and all that kind of stuff, too,
3: which we do for your safety. Yeah, your own privacy, if you will. It's all about the privacy. Aunt Agnes would approve.
4: Every now and then from time to time caroline as you know you've done a lot of podcasts with me i have i fall in love with little audio clips uh this Uh became uh, especially during the christmas podcast i would periodically fall in love with the clip and i would play it over and over again just because it made me laugh you know like you make no sense at all stuff like that you know (laughs) i have a new one and this one's gonna stick with me and i think it will transcend just the gilded age podcast you want to hear it
3: i absolutely want to hear it Uh, prepare yourself preparing no 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 just, just that. Just that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh,
4: I love it. That's I'm gonna, excellent. I would have make that a ringtone, so it's on my phone. I could just carry it around with me everywhere.
3: I think you should. That would be amazing
4: in my daily life, in my daily job. <laughs> I, just so many times, I want be I want uh, Christine Baranski to tell people.
3: No. <laughs> Just a reminder to everyone, we assume you've seen this episode, so we're not going to go step by step and recap. But if you have not watched the episode, there's absolutely going to be spoilers. So please go watch it and join us back for the conversation. No. Yes.
4: Uh, let's start with some preliminaries. Let's get right to the opening scene. I, I think this was a great way to pick up uh, tonight's episode, uh, based on how last week's ended. The cutting between Patrick Morris's, I'd say, sparsely attended funeral and mm. the unveiling of the Russell uh, Union Central Station plans—really nice juxtaposition of people rising and people people falling on the turn of a of, of a dime.
3: Like right into the ground, falling too soon. <laughs> too, too, too soon. soon. No. Wait.
4: <laughs> so uh i think you know it was it was great camera work too right the camera kind of panning up and looking down onto the casket going in as the camera would fall then over the plans being unlaid on the table you know a group of men or group of people gathered around one a hole in the ground one on the table it was it was just a very nice parallel smart camera work great direction on this whitfield's part i was i was really happy Mm -hmm. that it started that way
3: you had like the entire cast looking down too which was which is fascinating let's do some predictions here predictions so soon
4: i know but this is really the last time we're gonna we're gonna talk about Anne in this episode where does Anne morris go from here she she, i mean i don't want to say pauper but that's a word that we hear in this episode
3: it's okay to say pauper we won't take any offense
4: i feel like charles dickens when i say pauper i
3: don't want to say i hate to use the word pauper no don't it's it's okay please can i have my shares back no
4: Um, (laughs) no no <laughs> uh Yeah, I mean, where where does Anne go here? Presuming, I mean, she is she is of noble birth, right? She wouldn't have been married to Patrick if she wasn't. We know she she has a relation with Cornelius Eckert. Probably she has some source of money, but it can't. But it's probably not the same level as it was now. Does she get booted from society? Do we continue to see Anne? Does she become a a ghost, a hanger on? What's your prediction for where Anne Morris goes from here? I
3: feel like I'm going to go with they let her hang around for some period of time because she's going to be in this mourning uh, zone, which we kind of learned about from Marion. Remember, she came and she was still wanting to wear her black dresses because she was still in mourning. So we know that that's going to last for some period of time. And then I think at that point, there's going to be a whole reckoning of like, what exactly do we do with Anne? But I do think she has this grace period in which I think we'll see it for a little while. Unfortunately, there didn't seem like there's a lot of safety nets for people who fall from grace. Like it looked like once that happens to you within the society, nobody's really going to do anything for you. So I don't see any of the friends you know, scooping her up and, and bringing them into their homes or anything like that. I don't see that happening.
4: I agree with you. I think I think it becomes kind of an atrophy, right? She'll just fade away because she won't be able to keep up with the proverbial, proverbial Joneses. You know, she'll stick around until she can't stick around anymore. She, at some point, will have to prioritize feeding her kids
3: over... Attending a function.
4: Attending a function or attending a fundraiser or, you know, going to the Academy of Music for a night of music. And, and she showing off and showing out. It's going to take care of us. Killed age style.
3: <laughs> it's making me, this is terrible. It's making me think of that snake that eats its own tail. She's been kind of kind of snacking on her own tail for a while. I think she's going to eventually just eat her own self.
4: She is the Morus Boros instead of the Orosboros. Boros. <laughs> exactly. so. Let's stick with the co- consequences from last week and pick up with George and Charles Fane from uh, the beginning of the episode.
2: I'm very sorry about Patrick Morris. Whatever you may think. don't think anything. Beyond that, it was a sad end to what had been a reasonably decent life. You say it was my fault? No, Mr. Russell. We behaved badly and you punished us, which was fair enough. It's a pity that Morris wasn't equal to the test. This is not a game for weaklings. No, indeed. How are things progressing now?
4: I'm ready to pass the new bill. It will be announced next week or the week after. We'll send word. Will you
0: make back the money you lost? The share price is too high for that, as you know better than I.
2: But there's no point in crying when you play a game and lose. I bear you no ill will, Mr. Fane. It's not what it sounded like when the alderman came to see you. I was angry then. I'm not angry now. Good day,
4: What was more surprising to you in this scene? The seeming maybe remorse on George's part that it, that, I don't. Maybe he's a little haunted by by the death of Patrick Morris. Uh, maybe through his actions, or is it that Charles Fane is kind of just taking it in stride? Presumably, Patrick was his best friend or one of his best friends, and he's being very pragmatic in the scene.
3: Well, I, it's how a businessman I would expect to speak to another businessman. Like I think we were all taken aback by Patrick down on his knees begging and all that behavior. Everyone else was definitely keeping a stiff upper lip and I mean I just see you know Fane just continuing that honestly and and what can he say I mean at this point George has the upper hand he's got to just placate him and be like no 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 you did what you had to do and it just made sense like what can he really do at this point and I mean I feel like he plays his cards exactly right from George's perspective POV. I don't know if remorse is exactly right as much as having some amount of compassion and empathy for the situation like that, like this is a terrible ending to to what happened here. But like he said, he was mad before and he's not mad now. Like he, he he has a softer side to him. We've seen that. I was good with this interaction. I was more surprised that George chooses to befriend Fane here a little more and, and be almost his very godfather in many ways.
4: George has a softer side, right? Think about the end of last week's episode. He says, I don't mind doing the right thing as long as it doesn't cost me any money. And I I think on the question of remorse, it's right. I don't know how much it's remorse. I think he feels justified in what he did. I think he'd do it again if he had to. But he won. And so you can always be magnanimous when you win. It's very easy. It's much easier to be magnanimous (laughs) when when you are one still standing. And so he gets to be that here. He gets to take Advantage of an opportunity. Charles Fane. you know, he's putting on a good front here, but we know behind the scenes, we, we know from his conversations with Aurora later on, they're still hurting. They're still on the edge of poverty you know, based, based on what happened uh, with the stock market. So Charles is putting on a good front here, but inside he is slowly dying. Maybe not gun to his head, you know, dying yet, but he's he's not feeling great. I mean, his financial situation is dire. I think it's just him being another good businessman. And now he gets to work on one of his main agenda items, which is – helping his wife and and stopping what he sees as the continued disrespect of his wife climbing that long ladder and so he's going to do whatever he can and he has an opportunity here to do it noting how george deals with people he does the same thing he did with patrick insofar as the sneaky have a meeting in my carriage ride you know or showing up and he's using his carriage as like a method of discreet meeting location right as he's talking to charles from there he did the Same thing with Patrick. Big difference I'd like to note is, remember, he invited Patrick to his home because he needed to offer him a deal that was not ethical business if not straight out illegal it was at least not ethical right he invited him to his home to pitch the insider trading scheme to get the railroad bill passed here he says come to my office and i think it's just it's an interesting distinction and i think it's smart writing and the show does it on purpose and so i want to call attention to it the place setting for where business will be discussed matters the le- it makes it legitimate business or or signals to us if it's maybe under-the-table under, under the table kind of business. The price and then the plan. So we don't get to actually see the meeting between Charles and George, but we get the gist of it from the, the resulting conversation between the fanes. Let's listen to that.
0: So don't keep me in suspense. What does he want from you? He must want something in return. All right. He would like you to bring his wife into society. He's tired of her being excluded. She's no more excluded than any one of a dozen women I can think of. She just isn't included.
1: He's tired of it.
0: What can I do? You overestimate my power. You mean you'd like me to try?
1: Since you ask, I'd like us not to be paupers. I'd like us not to be dependent on your father's charity. I...
0: I would like us to be ourselves again. Very well. If you insist. Thank you. And mind what you say about my father.
4: I love that scene. I love the warning shot about her father and and mind what you say about him. I, I I like her going along with this plan, being, you know, listening to her husband, acknowledging his desperation, but not so lost in it that she is willing to let him forget about the hand that feeds them when they need to be fed. It's interesting. It's it's a it's a nice little reminder about the status of women in these relationships behind closed doors.
3: And good world building generally speaking that like, oh, so her father has a hand in y'all's lifestyle. Good to know.
4: Last week listen to the clip, Charles says, "I've lost all of my money and she very quickly reminds him all of our money. And in this episode, this is a chance for me to make my money back. She corrects him again. It's we. It's our. It's not your money, Charles. It is our money. Her father's money is her money and the family's money between her and Charles is their money kind of thing. I I like that Aurora is not letting that go. (laughs) That's what she brings to the table, right? That's what women in this society are being told they have to bring to the table. Their dowry or money or a name or some combination of the two and i like that she's not just handing it over to charles and letting him run amok with it maybe to the extent that patrick and anne failed to do it seems that aurora is keeping a better hand on the till on the rudder than anne did with patrick
3: she feels like she's exactly in between Anne and Bertha. Like, I think she'd like to be Bertha in terms of having that type of relationship with her husband, it being ours, but she does still have her Anne tendencies of being a little bit more hands-off when it comes to what's going on with their life, at least thus far. But it seems like she's starting to get the idea. The latter metaphor in my head can lend itself to what's going on with her, too, with Aurora in terms of like she she has a long ladder to climb herself in order to be any type of equal with Charles here.
4: In the interview with Kelly, she actually touches on that and she mentions the boldness that Bertha you know represents and how she'd like to see or how Aurora would maybe like to be more bold, but does live a bit in fear of Agnes, does live in fear of Mrs. Astor, but sees Bertha, not as an enemy as much as maybe a possible inspiration or or a, a little disruption right to to echo Bannister from a couple of weeks ago, so I think aurora is a is an interesting character because she is this middle place, you know she's got one foot it seems in both worlds, and so I'm interested to see what they do with her and and how she becomes this bridge, right? They're setting her up be, really to be the bridge between old money and new money. That's what George is putting into motion here. He's he's making her, you know, the Bifrost, connecting Asgard to the other realms, if, you know, for all that crossover Gilded Age Marvel fandom that, that is out there.
3: <laughs> See, and I was thinking of that ladder thing, you know, like in an old time, usually black and white movie where they'll be in one building and they'll take a ladder and they'll, and they'll carefully let it fall to create a bridge from mm-hmm. like one window Ledge to the under other window ledge. I could see that where she's practically doing that from Aunt Agnes's house over to the Russell House.
4: Uh, and let's go to the Russell House for now we heard about the price, let's hear about the plan.
0: Mr. Russell has been very generous to us. Has he? He helped us through a very difficult time. And you want to return the favor? If I can. How would you suggest we begin? I thought about this. I believe the best way would be to invite you to luncheon with Mr. McAllister. Ward McAllister? That's it. He's a sort of henchman to Mrs. Astor. He helps her in her work of shaping society. And Mrs. Astor takes his advice? I don't know that she ever takes advice exactly, but she allows him to help her. He is her amanuensis. I'm to lunch with Mr. McAllister, but not with Mrs. Astor. I'm afraid she always wants a list of her fellow guests and seldom agrees to sit at a table with strangers. Especially strangers like me. That's not true. She does let new people in. She has to, or they'll forge an alternative society and keep her and the old crowd out. Won't they anyway? Probably, but not in her time. How can you be sure that Mr. McAllister will want to meet me? He's dying to see this house. It's one of the only palaces on the avenue he's never been inside. And? (laughs) And? He loves money.
4: Some real straight talk between these two ladies. And and Bertha, you know, Larry during their dinner scene, during the Russell, what seems maybe to be an obligatory dinner scene at the Russell house, Larry acknowledges his mother's growth, right? Because she's a she's a little obstinate to having Aurora come over. She doesn't want another, you know, repeat of what happened with Ann Morris. Larry notes uh from the Peanut Gallery that, you know, it wasn't so long ago you would have rolled out the red carpet all the way to the road if Aurora Fame was coming here. So he seeing that his mother is having this spinal growth you know it's it's hardening and she's standing up for herself and not kowtowing to to the old ways and making them come to her and you see that here too you know she she's playing the game and aurora's responding in kind with some straight talk
3: I feel like it could be one of the most important exchanges we've had in this entire series so far, because even though this isn't episode five, and usually the the sort of like big, climactic mid-season kind of moment, you get that feeling of like, this is everything. This is everything you needed to know. If you really just sat down with someone and said, let me just play you just this clip. Okay, do you kind of understand now what has to happen between all of these women in society? I feel like they would get it just from that conversation. So there's something that it was needed and necessary for the audience, I think, to have it laid out so concisely. And now there is such a plan. And I feel like Bertha feels almost uncharacteristically accepting of the plan because she I know she asked a couple of questions there but like I mean I was happy that she let her guard down low enough to actually be like okay all right let's do this because I kind of expected a little bit more like what kind of crap is this you know but it actually worked and, and it was smart and I think this is a good plan I think it will work. I,
4: I agree with you. She does have a, a line in there. She, in I think it's towards the very end of it. I think I maybe even cut off the clip before she says it. She says, "Well, I have to, you know, I have to start somewhere, you know." And again, with the the long ladder, you, you know, kind of metaphor coming into play, I have to start. You have to start climbing the ladder somewhere a fundraising event at the Academy of Music is as good a place as any, and, and having lunch with Ward McAllister uh, is as good a place as any. So being pragmatic, and also Bertha is is smart, and she is calculating, and she does have a plan in her head of how this all should go, and how she should get her and her family to where she wants to be. And so I think you just need to give her a little bit of rope, and I think Bertha's going to be able to do some impressive things with it, if you do. A, 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 an invite to the Academy of Music, a lunch with Ward McAllister. She can run with that, I think.
3: And not being so thirsty again. Going back to your Larry mm. comment, not rolling out the red carpet, not being not being overly fussy about having a visit from one of these women in the society you want to be a part of. Just kind of playing it a little bit more cool. Actually, one hundred percent worked in her favor.
4: Uh, Before we leave the Russells, I want to talk about Gladys real quick, which feels kind of an aside. Their former governess, who's now been dismissed, allowed Gladys to... I go to a hotel with Archie Baldwin.
3: That was pretty bold. But very like, bold. A hotel?
4: A hotel <laughs> like, everyone.
3: Uh, mm, right, exactly. I was like, I, mm, I. it feels like there should have been a more uh, innocent kind of feeling place that you could have met. Like a park. Like we've had Mary right. and meet Rakes all these times. And
4: the Liberty Hand is still there. They could have just gone to the Madison Get Square to Park. the to,
3: fountain. Come on.
4: Right? I am more interested in Gladys not be not because of Gladys necessarily herself. I feel like they're still using her as a prop instead of really developing this character. She feels very much like a MacGuffin. Bertha and George continue to disagree over the best way to go forward with her George wants her freed he's big on the prison metaphor Bertha continues to see it as all part of this larger plan of she will come out in my ballroom when I can fill it she's got this grand plan that involves Gladys as part of those machinations It's the only thing we've seen them disagree with, and so it is extremely interesting to me that they do disagree with it.
3: I find it fascinating because we're also covering 1883 over in the Taylor Sheridan universe. And we have such a similar dynamic between James and Margaret and their daughter, Elsa. And and James being so willing to let Elsa grow and Margaret holding tight to trying to want her to be, you know, following certain societal norms and all this kind of stuff. I am I, like, wow, this is just the sign of the times, you know, because these are two very different creators, very different writers very different settings and yet they're setting up this same exact family dynamic which speaks to the time i think it's like this is what families were dealing with in the 1880s they were like how do we let our daughter be an adult and also try to have her be you know what is like acceptable but have this push oddly from the father being like let her go let her do her thing which is like very unexpected, I think. Were you surprised that it turns out to be George who really wants to be like, let's just, just cut it out? As opposed to, normally I feel like dads are kind of more strict and moms come along and are like, oh, come on, let's soften up a little bit.
4: That would be my normal inclination, too, especially in old times where you you assume everyone is less Uh, progressive but i think 1883 and the james and margaret aspect on raising elsa and and letting her run wild or free or not i think has probably clouded my judgment on it because it feels more right here it's a great comparison because we're this storyline is coming along just a, a few weeks in time behind uh, you know, 1883, just because it started a couple weeks earlier. So, yeah, I, I think it actually did soften my brain a little bit. I was like, oh, he's acting just like kind of James in 1883, as if men and, you know, letting their daughters be free, I guess. <laughs> it makes you
3: feel like it's like in the men's magazine. Like, like, do you have a teenage daughter? Maybe you should loosen up a little bit. And the women are reading their magazines, and it's like, tighten the reins, ladies. Oh, my These God. These husbands are letting them do whatever they want. Like, doesn't it feel like they're getting the same memo? Which- I
4: would die if George Russell was seen to be Doing ye old Cosmo, uh, you know, quizzes at the like folded into his Wall Street Journal. I think that would be hysterical.
3: Could Julian Fellows and Taylor Sheridan be like two different, like more different? creators and writers behind this. Like this has to be researched in some way. This has to be some actual feeling of like what was going on in families. I'm going to trust them that this was like a real push and pull of what was going on. And it wasn't until more current times that maybe moms were the more soft hearted ones.
4: It's got to take a lot of energy for George to be running this growing railroad empire uh, spending time plotting and defeating and annihilating your enemies and also, you know, the effort he's spending in trying supporting his wife. For him to be so involved in the family affairs it surprises me in a good way. I mean, I'm all about involved dads and, you know, uh, my own background and, and and my raising of my son, you know, I'm, I try to be very involved in what's going on with him. But That was born out of growing up. We're not having my father be involved. And so it it just strikes me as weird. This guy's got so much going on. That he is involved in and knows the players. He has a conversation later on with Larry after their dinner talking about Oscar Van Rijn. He is laser focused on Oscar and Oscar's intentions and wary of them. You know, he's again, he's got so much going on, but he is keeping track of all of the chess pieces inside his house. I think it's impressive.
3: I think it's a more modern thought that dads would be oh so busy to not be able to keep track of their own children and what's going on in their household and stuff. I think the idealized father is actually head of household, meaning involved in every aspect of everything, knowing not only business, but of course, knowing what's going on with the family and having a say in everything the children are doing and all that. Like that actually seems more, I don't know, for, for lack of a better word, like manly or whatever. Whereas like now the modern thought is like, well, well, fathers, you know, oh, they're oh so busy with the things they're doing. They can't possibly be bothered by their children. And it's like that would be looked down upon, I think, by by upper class society because it's like, what are you talking about? You don't know who your child's dating or you don't know, you know, like, oh my God, this is your, this is your future, this is your money, this is your lineage. How would you not know? But today's thinking is like, oh, I I mean, there's plenty of people who don't know the who their kids are are dating or doing whatever with, you know, right? Like, but that would not fly. Not at all.
4: Is George too good to be true? The guy is a beast at business, uh, an involved father that knows what's going on. He supports his wife. He's got that banging beard and then he's got this scene (laughs) of fidelity when Turner shows up all you know nude in his
0: bed
3: oh Turner nude in his bed Uh, you have no idea how much I was like what are you doing
0: I believe you need a woman who will help you to become the finest and the best man that you can be
2: I've already got one
0: be honest haven't you ever wanted a woman who thinks only of you mrs russell has many qualities but she has her own campaign to wage in the world. She has no time for yours. And you do. If you let me, I can make a sanctuary for you. A temple to your greatness.
2: My greatness. The flaw in your argument is that I love my wife. I have no desire for a mistress. No wish for another helpmate. No need for any sanctuary beyond this house.
0: So what is my punishment to be for falling in love with you?
2: Oh, the
4: falling in love with her. I mean, we knew Turner was going to make a move. They've been setting it up literally since the first episode. Is this how you thought it would go down? Is, is George's reaction what you thought it would be?
3: it's what I had hoped it would be. I think that Miss Turner had to make such a bold move because there's not really a lot of time for like smaller moments of fraternizing. It doesn't feel like they have much time to do this, so she had to go like right for the gold. I understand her play here. Her, this whole, you know, let me appeal to your ego and be like, maybe you are the most important thing here. You need someone who doesn't have any aspirations to be doing anything else or paying. Attention to anything else except for your needs. I totally get it, and it would probably work on like ninety nine percent of men. Certainly in television and movies. But here is the thing that we just said. Thankfully, the sentence before all of this was me saying, "But I think that the that what was held as the standard for what is a good man during this time also included being involved with your wife and children in some regard." Truly being head of household. Now I know some people saying Caroline, of course they had mistresses. What are you talking about? Like you're being unrealistic. Okay, I get it. But we're saying the idealized. Okay, like the one that we get. Lots of people fell short. But I think that George is still trying to be bigger than big, greater than great kind of guy. I mean, I applaud him, and I do. I honestly think he loves Bertha. I That's do. The deal. I agree. Like I really think they love each other, and I and I think that her ability to look in his eyes and never be disappointed and always say. You know what? We can we can make our fortune over again. All that kind of stuff. That kind of support cannot be underscored, you know, as like this is what a lot of men need. Most men need maybe every man needs is beyond just getting in bed with this woman. They need that level of support of like, let's let's frickin do this hand in hand. Let's like jump off the cliff together like that's something to be held on to maybe more than people realize than get butt in your bed, you know?
4: Yeah. and I, Yeah. I don't think you can underestimate or undervalue the two of them rising from nothing to where they are now, Bertha and George.
3: And her ability to not get upset at him if they lose it all. I mean, God, that's right? Huge. That all
4: stems from we. I we remember how to do this. We we remember what it was not to have this opulence, this Versailles on Fifth Avenue, and and we can do it again. And it, that that builds that builds a foundation that is hard to shake. While it seems idealized for how it would be portrayed uh, versus most shows, I think it's very much in keeping with the George Russell character that this. Show has created not take the bait. He would not jump into bed with her. Does he do the right thing by not firing? Turner here.
3: I thought about this so much because it's so damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. If he fires her, it becomes like this tittering of comments, right? Of like, why? Why? Oh, what happened exactly? Right. But keeping her around, obviously, you know, keeping a fox in the henhouse is a terrible idea. Also kind of feels like like she has like blackmail potential here where she can be like, oh, well, you know, those silky sheets, you know, like I know how they feel in your husband's bed kind of stuff. For me, she would need to go. I understand that she is helping Bertha and how to dress and all that stuff, but I'm going to give Bertha credit that she can find somebody else to help her find her wardrobe and and exactly what to look like. There's almost no good way for George to bring this to Bertha and say, "Here's the situation."
4: My parents went away on a week's
3: vacation. <laughs> Remember that night when you kind of like barged down the stairs and we didn't really even kiss goodbye or anything and you were like super busy with your own thing? Well, this other situation happened that night. I didn't really like bring it up at the time. Like it, it's all ugly. Like I right. don't know how – Bertha's going to be pissed no matter how you handle it. So for me, I'd want to rip off the Band-Aid and like have the argument right the second and get her out of the house immediately.
4: Or tell Bertha and say, I didn't fire her because you hired her for a specific reason, and I think she could still be useful to you. I'm telling you uh, so that you know and so that you know nothing is going on here. So in case there is tittering or you do catch wind of it. I want you to be in the know, right? These two, these two appreciate knowledge. They like knowing what the score is. So they're never surprised. So I feel like George has to tell Bertha about this sooner rather than later because he looks in the wrong. Even though he's done, we've seen him do the right, the chivalrous thing here, the good husband thing here. If he doesn't tell her and keeps her on.
3: What it seems like is he's keeping her as an option. Right. Right. Or defeats
4: his credibility that nothing happened, right? If a uh, Turner can be seen coming out of his room in the middle of the night if some servant is, you know, cleaning up a church, is 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 turning down the house for the night.
3: Wait, weren't you shocked that there wasn't? The way that she kind of goes out of his room and kind of pauses and her outfit is still lingering off of oh, her yeah, shoulder. Yes, I thought for sure someone was going to see her come out.
4: Right, and so it's going to become his word versus her and maybe to his face people will be like, oh, of course, sir. This woman of ill repute, but from there on, it would always be doubt and aspersions that something happened in that room.
3: Is that inevitable, though? Like, regardless of when he tells or whatever, like, is there already going to be doubt?
4: Maybe, but I think the only the only doubt he cares about is going to be Bertha's doubt. And the longer it takes for it to come out and her to find out, the more the larger that doubt will be when she inevitably finds out and she will inevitably find out.
3: Will it be George? Will it be Turner? Or will it be Bertha herself? Who is like going to end up actually having to do the this reveal of like what of that there was any indiscretion here?
4: I I don't know. I mean, it feels think it's Turner. it feels like Turner in a in a fit of. Snottiness, snottiness and, and whatever, you know, while she's dressing her. I mean, she gets to see Turner gets to see Bertha in her most vulnerable every day. Anyone who watched in Abbey knows the access that the handmaids have to their mistresses is immense the amount of information that gets spoken in their presence because you forget that they're there and maybe you forget that they shouldn't have the information that you're or hear the information that you're talking about in your dressing room in your room while you're getting dressed you begin to share secrets you 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 they become like a dear diary for you a lot of times because it is an intimate relationship turner is not the person that bertha should be sharing any intimate information or or important or secret information with Is Turner swayed by George's actions here, turning her down and letting her stay in the job to, for the express purpose of you know how to work in society? My wife needs that. My wife hired you for that purpose, so I want you to continue doing that job. Is that nobility – going to be something that maybe turns turner into someone devoted to bertha to spending energy to try and get her where she wants wants to go is she so moved by this this turn of events and and rejection from george that she in fact becomes the handmaid that bertha (laughs) wanted her to be
3: I don't see her suddenly finding this softer side and being cool with Bertha. And like, I, I don't see that. I mean, what I see is her continuously picking at George, acting as if I might let it slip that I was in your bed, because frankly, even though they didn't do anything, she was naked in his bed. That's all she has to say to Bertha to have the to have the fireworks start. I was naked in your husband's bed and he's, he's seen me naked, all that stuff. That's, these are all the things that have to be said.
4: He knows where my bowl is. So
3: gross. So here's the thing. I think she uses this as a power play to get money from him to start some other life. I think that this is going to be a complete blackmail play. And that's why it would have been better to get her out of the house. But even that alone doesn't solve it. He has seen her naked. He does know where the mole is, and she was naked in his bed. So if those things were said in public, it's not false. No. So then, crap. What do you do? Besides pay her off and say, "Please go to another country." <laughs>
4: what he should have done was ring for
3: yes, scream. ring for
4: Watson, <laughs> ring for Watson from his room, and and stayed there until someone came in and said, "Get this woman." This naked woman out of my bed and out of this house be gone wench like that's what she that's what, that's what he needed to do because
3: ring the bell for everyone to right. come. <laughs> like everyone come
4: find naked yeah. lady yes. you know
3: and that way we've all seen where her mole is and then right. now we can all be like yeah this happened and i'm horrified you can all see my face i'm horrified uh, you're right that was the only way to play it but he didn't and now that he let her slip out in the night <sighs> bad news bears does That's Ma- the second time I said that. Do I need something else to say besides bad news bears? <laughs> no. That's my only thing.
4: <laughs> Does Monsieur Baudin share some responsibility for spurring Turner into action with his, Why are you so angry all the time? Leave or change things. Well, she fucking tried to change things. That's for damn sure.
3: Oof. No, I know. You know I'm not blaming him. No, she's a jerk. She's a snake of the worst. Freaking! Variety. She's a
4: Morris Boris She's eating is she a snake, eating her own tail.
3: <laughs> no, she's not eating her own tail. She's 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 a freaking viper, man. She's she's gonna bite onto everybody's necks, whomever she can. Yeah. She. No, you knew it. She's that kind of she's that kind of rattlesnake that bites your butt when you try to go to the bathroom.
4: Here's the thing. I think you're 100 percent right. I think it's gonna wind up with her extorting him for money.
3: And frankly, he's got the money. So I mean, this is exactly how she's gonna rise the ranks.
4: But I hope they come up with something else for it just for creativity sake because i think they've actually i think the show has actually done a really good job of subverting expectations and subverting what the trope is i think george as a character i think subverts the trope of the powerful man sitting in the high castle so well i'm hoping they come up with something just because if any show is going to do the not obvious thing i feel like it's the gilded age
3: most specifically the Russells. So, yeah, no, I I, 100%. I'm 100% behind you that that would be amazing. Uh, But just from the standpoint of... Like, I always love it when a TV show brings up a situation that could happen in real life and then they offer a solution that you had never heard of before. Like, you know, like I love that with like a leg on Schitt's Creek when they're like, how could you handle something? How could you explain something in a way that's like you've never heard it explained in that way? I would love to hear how can you get out of this when you've made kind of a like, like we've decided, like if he had screamed, like if he had done like the womanly scream, like, oh, there's something in my bed, like if he had actually done that, how funny would that have been? And actually acted like scared, if you will, that someone was in his bed, like that would have been amazing. But once you didn't do that, what is the trick? How do you get out of this? I want this TV show to tell me, what's the trick? How do you get out of this? She's
4: gonna have to go to the demon barber of uh fleet street she's gonna have to become some meat pies she's gonna get some sweeney todd up in here
3: no you should have called ghostbusters no aunt agnes and you know what she would have said to turner no exactly (laughs) have her come in and go no (laughs) (laughs) and send her packing
4: mr russell she is an adventurer and i am never wrong
3: she is an adventurer You know what I realized from 1883 and in this one? Adventurer and dreamer are the same. They're the same. They're used as the we're looking down on you. Yeah,
4: they're used as a curse word. He's a dreamer.
3: And then Agnes, he's an adventurer.
4: Margaret, he's a dreamer. He always will be she oh, didn't that's speak claire. that nicely that's uh-uh. claire she said that's, he's a dreamer uh, like that he Maligrant. said it in a mean way. She said so pathetic Maligrant. Maligrant. <laughs> um, guys go listen to our 1883 episodes it's great it's a real juxtaposition from this just the world is so different even though it's in the same time it's period the same
3: time frame which i think it makes it fascinating to see what's going on in the world
4: let's visit with miss peggy scott
3: Yay! I love Peggy. I'm so glad we're going to go visit with her.
4: Timothy Thomas Fortune, played by Sullivan Jones, he editor and publisher so of the New York Globe. Very handsome. Just a little background here. Timothy Thomas Fortune, real man. He lived from 1856, approximately, to 1928. He actually had a very impressive career. In 1875, Fortune was admitted to study law. He changed his major to journalism after just two semesters and then left school altogether to begin working. In, 1880, in 1876, at the People's Advocate, a newspaper in Washington, D.C. Fortune moves to New York City in 1879, begins working as a printer at the Weekly Witness. In 1880, he becomes a journalist and editor of The Rumor, which is run by George Parker, who we meet in this episode, played by Michael Luoye, who I am a huge fan of, who does not get enough TV work, and I love him to death, and William Walter Sampson. The journal soon changes its name to the New York Globe. The Globe closes its doors in November 1884. After a dispute with its co-editor, William Derrick. And then one week later, Fortune opens up a new magazine called the New York Freeman. The New York Freeman would eventually morph into the New York age show blending the fictional with the historical. I love it. What did you think? I felt like this was a bit of a meet cute with Peggy jumping in and having to help Fortune out with the uh, printing press.
3: It was. It was adorable. And he himself is so handsome. And I love that he seems so smart when he put on his little glasses, his little spectacles, if you will. I was like, "Like you are so handsome and smart. And I love their chemistry. I felt like chemistry. Oh, my God. It like jumped off the screen. Loved it.
4: He respected her and her abilities, but he knew her writing. He knew who she was. It wasn't just mm-hmm. that. It wasn't just that someone had given him something, and he was like, "Bring her in, bring her in, whatever." He seemed like he had read it, he had consumed it, and he liked it. And I and I think that was immediately clear he wanted Peggy to be writing for him.
3: I loved how smart he was on the fly additionally like when she's speaking and he's not just like listening to what she's saying but he's like processing what she's saying and then is encouraging her to write the vote piece and I was like yes like this is very fascinating this is going to be this is going to be a great partnership between the two of them he really cares about what she thinks.
4: I mean we we talk every week about Peggy and Marion and how Marion needs to get unpicked. Peggy's level.
3: Oh, my God. Stop talking about that. <laughs>
4: but but I mean, but we're going to be talking about it, though, because it comes to a head at the end of this episode. But the level of friendship wise and, and, and having a thing to say, this is something Marion Marion has told Peggy was I don't have anything to say. I wish I was like you. You know what you want to do. You have a voice. You have a, a point of view and you want to say it. I think Fortune is like her male counterpart, and I think that was one of the things that came so clear in this instant chemistry was they are both smart, attractive people. Like, they need to be together having wonderful conversations while they make kissy faces. Like, that's all I want. I want them to be intelligent and, and also making out all the time. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I absolutely want to sit at dinner with them and listen to them talk and and hear the the fascinating conversations they're going to have and just just watch them work together and yeah. create new ideas and then create this product this newspaper together that I just am um, it's very exciting.
4: This it's, it's such an American take on the salon right you know French salons were these places where people would come and exchange the the brightest philosophical ideas of the age it feels like this is where it's happening in America in this this one room print house where they're you know the inky paper is being printed next to them and they're having this conversation when she says why would I have an affiliation with the other party I don't have the right to vote the oxygen got sucked out of the room in that extremely observant point cuz of course she's she's 100% right and you're 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 so right to say he processed that he heard it digested it and processed it and turned it into another piece to hire her for he's all about his instincts but he gets that she knows what she's doing and what she's talking about i love that i thought the scene was electric between these two
3: it 100% was and it made me so happy when we just had the scene previous to this at the Christian advocate and the and the the grind mm-hmm. that that give and take was was that it just it like hurt to have to sit in that chair and listen to this man just say all these things that just felt so pitiful and yeah it just felt pathetic like I was so sad I mean it felt like a grind it literally felt like she was being ground down and then to have this where I felt like she was just like walking on a cloud you know in this conversation with him because the two of them were so in sync and so ready to just exchange ideas thank God you know she's got this opportunity now for the two of them to really work together it's i'm really like legitimately very excited to see what they create
4: question whether or not this political affiliation and to write to vote piece that she's been hired to right now is this going to cause blowback in society it seems agnes doesn't have a problem with her writing she doesn't want to know the details but as we've talked about several times in this episode already things don't stay secret in this world it's gonna make its way into society. Is this a potential pitfall for her continued employment in the Van Ryn house?
3: Oof. I mean, I felt like Agnes heard absorbed and mitigated it in her own mind that like, maybe this is going to be fine. I just don't want it to be something that we're all talking about around here. I'm trying to decide whether Aunt Agnes 100% has her hands wrapped around what goes on in the rest of the world current. I know she feels like she does. I know she has a lot of experience. But I'm trying to decide if, like, is the world starting to change more quickly than she can really control? And I think we know that, obviously, with the Russells and everything that, that Oscar's always telling her, she is, you know, having a hard time with how quickly things are changing. I'm glad they had that conversation where she was sort of like, keep it to yourself and everything will be fine. Because you're right. I think that that, that's our big like clue in from the audience that like there's no way that this can stay hidden and there's no way that it's not going to impact Agnes and her household. It's all going to come down to what Peggy writes. What she's saying about why should I have an affiliation politically when I don't have the right to vote isn't actually that inflammatory you know i mean it's like if i'm not playing the game why would i pick a team i'm not i'm not playing so so i think it's something to point out like you know if you're if you're interested in getting women as involved in politics you might need to give us the vote <laughs> that might be helpful and so i see that as as being a topic of, of conversation we're still a ways off though i don't know exactly how much impact it would have
4: Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know. I feel like it's going to be some kind of issue, but I think it's going to be down the road. I I think it'll be more of an issue for Agnes because it'll seem like disruption to their society will be coming from her house. And I think that's where the rubber's going to meet the road. You know, it's interesting listening, going back to that conversation between Aurora and Bertha, where Aurora says Mrs. Astor has to let new people in from time to time or else an alt society will rise up, you know, form with her not in it and challenge her place in society. So she has to let new people in. Listening to Aurora describe Mrs. Astor as being pragmatic. And again, we heard Patrick tell Anne, you know, Mrs. Astor gets how it how the world works and gets how business works. And Mrs. Astor herself saying sometimes you have to fight, sometimes you have to take on the politicians. There's a pragmatic side to the world changing that it seems Mrs. Astor gets. I don't know that Agnes has that same memo. I don't know that it was circulated to her desk.
3: She's just not interested. In it. Yeah. I mean, I she think has a great line, desk. right? It's, I haven't been happy her... since
4: 1865 or I haven't been thrilled <laughs> since 1865. You know, so. you
3: know I, feel like, I feel like that the memo is there. It's under all the rest of her correspondence on her desk. I do want to point out, and I feel like we've said it before on the podcast, but I, I want to remind people that I do think that Peggy's character has something to do with Ida B. Wells. And for those of you, we'll put some stuff up on the Facebook page about her, but but she's a black journalist, and um, she led an anti-lynching crusade in the U.S. in uh, 1890s, but she also specifically fought for women's suffrage. And there's something about her uh, that speaks to me. Maybe she's just, uh, you know, just a little bit of her as that a part of this character, but there's something about her that I very much want to um, to keep thinking about in the back of my head. I, I don't know. I was drawn to her immediately. Uh, when Whenever we started meeting Peggy, I was like, oh my goodness, I really feel like that she's going to be somehow delving into this Ida B. Wells characters in, in history. I really want to know more about like what exactly she's going to do. But Suffrage specifically was part of her her crusade, so I'm really curious about like what are they going to do. I, you're right. Agnes, Agnes has got a lot of upheaval in her own home with all of these women who are living with her right now, wanting to create something new in the world. And I, I can definitely see that she is going to be uncomfortable in a lot of coming episodes.
4: Yes. She, she Much like King Canute, she will only be able to keep back the horde of Vagarians for so long before they come <laughs> exactly. crashing through her door.
3: She's going to have to use her line a lot.
4: We'll definitely put up some stuff about Ida B. Wells because I think that is an interesting comparison into the Peggy character, this fictional Peggy character. but. The introduction of T. Thomas Fortune in this episode, you know he was a lifelong advisor to Booker T. Washington. He is considered a forerunner of what would be a hundred years later the civil rights movement in this country he was uh, he was an an early proponent of putting forth real civil right changes, you know, just the Civil War didn't change everything. Right. And in this Reconstruction period, you know, Black people were still struggling for real equality, not just on paper equality. And he actually would like uh, come to loggerheads with like Frederick Douglass. And and so T. Thomas Fortune was a political mind and was a proponent, an early proponent of civil rights and and equality rights for, for Black people people it's going to be interesting to see how peggy working at the globe and being in close contact with mr fortune is going to influence society as a whole but these characters in particular too Uh, which is a great segue to going to lunch in brooklyn with the scots there's so many things to talk about here
3: do you know the amount of times I put my hand to my head during these scenes? Where I was like, Marion, Marion. <laughs> Even before Marion
4: shows up, I mean, I, I, Arthur Scott is so, he's such an interesting character. He tells that Uncle William story, right? Cause he's having a problem with his crab fork and in, and, and about the. The he tells the story about how his uncle William would always dip egg in his jelly and so that always there was always egg pieces. And it's a funny story to him, and he's telling it and he's laughing, and Dorothy, his wife, is she's amused by it, and it's very lighthearted. And it ends up with William being sold. There's a level of what the Scots are living with that I don't have stories that end like that. You know what I mean? It's but it's it's conveyed in such a realistic and and emotional way i was laughing at the William story i thought it was funny and so it felt like a gut punch yeah you know so you, you i think this episode does a great job of grounding arthur scott and really showing his point of view and maybe you don't agree with everything he does maybe he's too gruff and too aggressive in how he behaves but damn it if i didn't have a really good sense of why he acts the way he acts based on what transpires in this episode were you surprised to learn we finally learned he owned a pharmacy he's a druggist, and he wanted that and not only that, but he had planned on passing that along to Peggy. Was that the job you thought he was going to
2: have?
3: I had no idea i and i I really wasn't sure at all, but I did feel. Like, it felt very progressive to pass on a business to a daughter. Mm. So that alone is what struck me. I was like, oh, okay, all right. Again, kind of going to this whole, like, fathers of these days, like, kind of surprising me, I guess. The Jameses and the and the Georges and now the Arthurs, surprising me with their ability to, to see the worth in their daughters. It just doesn't seem like many stories have really depicted that for me at least the stories that i've seen so i was happy for that their entire family dynamic was amazing it was so layered it was so rich it real. was so it felt um, so real <laughs> it did all, all of the like the small bickering and the the like just the nuance between all of them. It felt so lived in. And
4: right. it felt like they were talking about things that they have had a lifetime of speaking about. Even down yes. to Dorothy talking about how the son is back from Howard University and she's in full matchmaking mode. Like we don't know these people, but they're talking. We're just dropping in and getting to be a fly on the wall for this family, this family birthday lunch. And I loved it. it, it felt, I, I feel
3: like I have yeah. attended these birthday lunches. Like I like it was so right. well written and so well portrayed. I was like, yeah, I understand this. And why that is striking me is because there's so many other meals that we have sat down with that were so foreign to me because of the grandeur, because of the, the fancy, complicated plates and place settings and all this kind of stuff. This conversation felt so, like you're saying, so real, but like even so modern. Like it just felt like exactly. Exactly how we would be talking right now, which not every other conversation sounds like that. We weren't hearing that at the Russell house necessarily or or other things that with Aunt Aunt Agnes, like a lot of the things that we're hearing in those houses tend to be about societal norms and stuff that that aren't very relatable all the time. But this conversation was like, I know exactly what's going on here. Like my parents bicker like the same exact way. Like I get this. Did you feel that way? Did you feel like they were, like, a more accessible uh, family to, to, like, listen to and sit down with?
4: I've been in these lunches. I've been with this family. It felt very accessible to me. It wasn't... Palace of Versailles, grand ballroom luncheons, like you get at the Russell's house. But man, this is a really nice house. And, and, and they've got gorgeous. Yeah. It was so, it was so ornate. I love the, the dark woods and all of it. I was, it's, it's how I've lived in that part of Brooklyn. It looks like it's Brooklyn Heights to me. My favorite apartments I ever had were there. They, they are even a hundred years later, a hundred plus years later. There's a charm and an understated decadence to them. It was my favorite location so far, uh, actually. As far as rooms go, it was the one I've enjoyed the most over the Rand Rines dining room and, and living room and sitting room that we've seen and all the different rooms we've seen of the Russell's house. This was my favorite room by far. But this conversation, though, and I think it's a credit to the actors in the scene. You have three phenomenal theater actors all having lunch together. It's a master class. You know, you have Danae Benton. You have Alder McDonald and, and John Douglas Thompson, you know, who plays Arthur. And these guys are, are pros. And it's one of the things I, I we talk about it in the interview with Kelly O'Hara. But it's something that you've seen a lot in if you've read any write ups about the show. The theater star power of this show is one of the, its greatest strengths because the fifteenth person on the call sheet in the show has has been nominated, if not won a Tony Award. You know, there's there between these three people, I think there's there's probably something like twelve tony nominations you know sitting at this table having lunch these guys are pros and they convey they can bring to life this lunch with these people that you don't know talking about people you don't know and it feels like you have known them forever i love the scene which makes Marion's arrival all the more awkward right because there is tension at this table you have um arthur you know talking about the pharmacy but in the same hand I've, i wanted you to run the pharmacy i wanted to pass it on to you and then shitting on her writing career ain't no money in it you know like be happy for her but that but he can't he literally can't let himself let his guard down to anything less than the standard he has created for what his daughter should do. Do you know parents like this? Do you, did, did that seem yeah, real? Yeah, we talked
3: about this for sure, like last week, about you know creative professions and, and how difficult it is to really have, both from the parent point of view and from the kid point of view. Like, from the parent point of view, you just want them to have this steady, consistent, reliable income with a sort of known quantity to the career. And then on the flip side, you know, how sad it makes the kid when they have this creative passion for their job and they badly want the respect from their parents i mean it is a difficult thing i don't know that she's ever going to win him over um you know hopefully in time but i have a feeling that whatever she writes he's going to be like you're just you know you're causing trouble or something like that you know like no exactly i don't see him enjoying anything she has to say which it's too bad because she is such a you know an insightful person that could you imagine her being wasted you know know, just doing something where, you know, you're, you're behind a counter, just sort of like, you know, doing more of a clerical kind of feeling, right. Beyond like a creative job, and that's not my my cousin's a pharmacist. I have nothing against pharmacy work, but you know what I mean. It's just not. It's not a very creative. Right. Crea- job. Creativity
4: is actually really frowned upon in, in yeah, pharmaceutical work.
3: Probably the opposite of pharmaceutical work yes. entirely. No one wants you to be creative. Yeah, when
4: I walk into cbs I don't want my pharmacist to be like, I, you know, I got your script, but I did st- mixed and
3: mingled. <laughs> I, I
4: did a thing with it. I think you'll I like hope it. you
3: like what I did. Yes, it's let me feel. know if it good. Re- yes, <laughs> exactly.
4: And you know, so, so there's an underlying tension in this lunch already, and then this happens.
3: Miss Brooke, I'm Marion
1: Brooke, Mrs. Scott. What are you doing here? I thought I'd surprise you. You succeeded. Mm-hmm. Miss Brooke is the niece of Mrs. Van Ryn. Why
2: have you come?
0: What Mr. Scott means is
1: my why...
2: daughter works for your aunt. Why are you here, uninvited?
4: why have you come you are uninvited at this lunch i mean which is not the way to accept a guest into your house but i also totally get i mean from his point again i really tried to take a step back and i really saw this whole scene from his point of view and it's not how i'd want my dad to react i hope i wouldn't be so gruff in polite company but i kind of also get Everything he's doing here, I understand all of his actions in the scene, starting with, why have you come? You don't belong here. Why did Marion come? What What is she thinking here? Help me through this social faux pas that she commits here. Because it wobbles my mind. It baffles me how she behaves in the scene.
3: I mean, why she came, I don't think is ever 100% explained. Obviously, she has this really off-base idea that Peggy must come from a lower class family who is so down and out that they would they would appreciate these old boots and my god, why did she not come up with some sort of cover story? Why did she open the bag? I mean, I would be like, this this is nothing. It's just this bag I carry around and I'm gonna open it. I'm not gonna show anybody what this is. <laughs> like, why oh why, oh why did she actually expose herself as to what she was really doing? there i don't know what she was thinking starting with
4: going arriving at the address outside those brownstone rows they're so gorgeous immediately if she's paying attention she has to be thinking i don't have the right handle on this i don't understand how she's not questioning her assumptions that she is arriving here based in having made From before she even meets Ellen, the maid at the door. And then when she asks her, do you have a card? Marion, you need to go into second gear and start thinking of an excuse of why you're here with your ugly old used boots get to thinking of an excuse because you have to read the scene better. You have to read the room better. It's it's thumping you over the head that your assumptions you've made are wrong. Is she so bad at improv? She needs to take an improv class I think. Did they have UCB back in 1882? Uh, I don't know. But Or groundlings or something? She needs to take an improv class.
3: Just the fact that there was like a space there that would have like had your coat and hat and whatever like just leave your bag by the door. Like why? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, was... Why
4: continuing holding in your hand there? Right?
3: I don't No, like it was all so wrong. I was like married and on for honest to God, why did she show up at Peggy's mother's birthday uninvited? What was she doing? To me, I just feel like she is so out of touch with what is polite society, much less this high level society that she's supposed to be a part of. But just, my God, you don't show up at anyone's house unannounced while they're having a birthday. I loved Arthur's. You were not invited. I was like, yes.
4: Right. And now I, I think defenders of her and, you know, I think defenders of her would say, well, she was trying to be a friend to Peggy. She knew Peggy was not happy about having to go home. Right. Which is true. Peggy has spent the entire series being very closed lip as to why she doesn't want to go home to Brooklyn, but not hiding the fact that she does not want to go home to Brooklyn. So I think from that point of view, Marion sees herself as being a good friend here, but also there's a time and a place to show up and it's a birthday lunch. You're not invited. You're picking the wrong time to show your good friend this. Right, this is not the time to show up. And who shows up to someone's house with a gift of old shoes? Why you go well, steal a bottle of wine
3: or something?
4: I've no, never seen no, anyone. No, no, no. <laughs>
3: she really thought that they were that this impoverished. She I dresses mean, she, nicer than Marion. <laughs> I know that. I a thousand percent agree with you. But my God, but this is what she was thinking, right? I mean. Marion is painful I mean I I understand and people can try to defend Marion and try to be like oh she's a nice person and blah 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 and she is I mean she's obviously supposed to be playing the like most naive character you can possibly have on the show but I really want to get to the exchange outside though because that's really what I cared about more than anything
0: what are you doing here
1: and the shoes what was that because we're colored we must be poor I loaned you
3: train fare. I made a stupid assumption.
1: And you just showed up at my parents' home. What's so wrong about that?
3: My aunt lets you live at her house.
1: Let's me? I work there. I know. No, you don't know anything about me, about my life, about my situation. I live in a different country from the one you know. Look, I'm sorry. Don't be sorry.
3: Just stop thinking you're really, my friend. Yikes. Ouch. Just yikes. <laughs> Just ouch. Ouch. That, it hurt. The whole thing hurt. I mean, I've been saying all along since day one... What in the world is Marion bringing to this friendship? I mean, how can she really think she is Peggy's friend? I mean, she she really doesn't have anything but questions (laughs) and needs and whatnot. When Peggy says, I loaned you. Right. She almost like broke the period that we were in right then because there was something about the strain in her voice that was like I was watching a modern show, yeah. you know. It and, was so
4: funny, though. I listened yeah, to it a bunch. I oh, almost carved it out just to be like its own audio clip because it was so
3: I great. loved it. I loved it. But it was it was so strained, so angry at like, how are you this obtuse? I mean, I feel like in many ways she I, I, I was Peggy. I was like I was like. Like Peggy was like came inside me or I came inside Peggy. We're like, we're finally going to tell Marion to knock it off because I'm sick of how absolutely empty she is. She doesn't bring anything to the table and she just sits here and shows up. What? I mean, oh, my God, Mike, it's like making me angry. I'm like pounding my little quiet fist against my my desk right now (laughs) because I'm like, what? It's not even gumption. It's like what kind of just absolute... Obliviousness. It's just ...brainless a- action ob- oblivious. is to show up at someone's house with some sort of hand-me-downs? Right. What are you thinking? Seriously. And
4: the oblivious nature, and it's exacerbated in this episode because we haven't talked about it and we're talking about it a little bit out of order, but at the top of the episode, you have Marion dragging Peggy into Bloomingdale Brothers, which go to our website, go to the Facebook group, Um and I have some... Fun Stuff uh, from uh, from Bloomingdale's from when it operated before it was the department store that we all know and love today. But Peggy is telling her, "I don't want to go in there." And then when she's in there, Marion is oblivious to all of the looks that Peggy is getting and being watched. She's being watched by the store staff. Peggy looks like she wants to crawl under a rock. Why is she here? It's because her quote unquote friend is oblivious to her discomfort. If not for Miss Chamberlain, thank God she's there because she's got the wherewithal to understand what's happening and calls Peggy over to look at the jewelry box because she sees what the store is doing to Peggy and how uneasy Peggy is. And she says, come closer, have a look by like she she puts her around like her protective bubble of society and gives Peggy some relief from the store jerks Marion is oblivious to all of that. Even when Mrs. Chamberlain does that, I still don't think Marion understands why. I don't think she even thinks about it. She doesn't think about Peggy and Peggy's place in the world at all. Now, people may say, well, it's because she's colorblind and she doesn't look at Peggy as like they live in different worlds. But that is an obliviousness, though, in this time and age. They do. They are not the same color. They do live in two separate worlds. They are different rules. And... It is a little unforgivable, I think, on Marion's part to be so obtuse to that fact, you know? And, and You're not being dangerous. a good friend.
3: Yes, yes! Yeah, I mean, it's it's dangerous to act that foolish. I mean, she does not know what could have happened to Peggy. They could have called the police yes. or something insane, and she would have been like, oh! And not been of any well, assistance She's my to friend! Her. Right! No, right, right. bull! I don't even think she would be saying that, because I, I honestly think she would just be so, like, oh! Flustered that she wouldn't even step forward and try to help Peggy you know like she just doesn't seem to ever know what to do thank goodness for Mrs. Chamberlain and for actually being like no girl come over here like let's all hang together because like she understood a threat and saw that these you know these shop people were going to cause a problem for Peggy so thank God you know for that situation but God Marion even when they were standing outside and I know as the audience we au- we have the benefit of being able to see both of their faces and you know Marion was looking at the things in the glass wasn't Said, I don't want to go in there. She, she just
4: steamrolls her.
3: But that's where it's like, you're being a terrible friend and like right. you don't do anything that's kind here. Right.
4: Because even the most basic friend should be like, well, why? It's Bloomingdale's. Like, we need to go shop. I, got, I need handkerchiefs. So give Peggy the opportunity to tell you why she doesn't want to go. Peggy's not a, a wilting flower. She'll say, I'm not welcome in there or, or something. Peggy would have stuck up for herself, but Marion doesn't even stop. It just steamrolls it and doesn't even get Peggy a chance to explain herself that's not good friendship that is not friends i'm glad peggy puts her on blast here at the end of this episode because she needs to hear it she needs to hear that stop pretending that we we'll are be friends because a good friend also doesn't say why i can show up at your house here in brooklyn because my aunt lets you lets you live in her house that
3: is It's ugly. That's fucked
4: up. When she said Mm -hmm. that, I was like, "Oh, Marion, oh Marion, what are you doing? Like that is
3: oh." See, and this is the thing. I know this entire time, you know, our audience might have been like, "Why are you guys being so hard on Marion for you know so early on in this?" And again, we have screeners, so I'm I'm not going to pretend like I hadn't had a little more of a taste of Marion. I did, and and she's so the the um, lack of understanding of what's going on around her. Creates these these situations now at this point in the series where you're like this isn't even funny anymore. It's one thing for you to be like oh I don't understand which fork to use. Ha ha. What you're doing now is creating like legitimate danger for Peggy, and now you're really screwing up her family life and everything else that's going on. Like it's not funny anymore. This isn't cute. Like you need to get yourself together.
4: Right. And it's not on Peggy to teach you how to be a friend. Th- this is something you need to figure out and then give me a ring kind of thing. Because it is become, it has become, it is now an issue in Peggy's life. Marion is now literally a liability to her. Bringing her to that store where something could have happened to Peggy and it wouldn't have affected Marion. Bringing her into this, you know she's already having difficulties and tensions at home. You showing up, how do you think that's going to help? You know, and then I want to I want to visit that one. Just one last time before we leave Brooklyn, we have this conversation. Uh Ultra McDonald, she's so fucking good. She breaks my heart. Here is Dorothy when Peggy. Thoroughly humiliated by her "quote unquote" friend, decides to leave. She says, "Ellen, oh, get my gloves." And Dorothy says, "But, but we haven't had my birthday cake yet."
3: I, <sighs> my heart, my heart. As a mom, my heart broke. I, I, knew it I was, would. Really, I thought of you uh, was, immediately.
4: I was like, Car- a Caroline would be heartbroken in this. Scene.
3: I would be so sad. I mean, oh my gosh, she has this little teeny tiny birthday, and it's just like this teeny tiny little get together. And then Peggy's gonna leave. I was just like, oh my god, you felt the performance there was so authentic the sadness was so authentic i was like oh my god
4: let's finish off uh the Scott parent
3: parents scott with the squirts. wait wait i have to ask you okay you just had your birthday if tom looked at you and said i'm i'm leaving and you hadn't done your birthday cake yet could you see your own little voice say that but we haven't had my birthday yet
4: absolutely and i would have I would have gone and cried in my room. I am often I am often upset whenever Tom leaves. So leaving early on my birthday because some stupid bitch friend shows up uh, would have would have made me very upset. What is a
3: stupid bitch friend? Nice... We're not done with oh the Scots yet though.
4: Let's finish up with uh, Papa and Mama Scott.
0: Miss Ellen, can you fetch my gloves, please? We haven't had my birthday cake. You're welcome to join us, Miss Brooke. You're very
1: kind, Mrs. Scott. Happy birthday and many happy returns.
0: Yes, Mother, many happy returns,
1: but we're going now. Goodbye,
0: Miss Ellen. Well, we have certainly taken a step forward today.
2: Our responsibility is to raise a child with a sense of right and wrong. I cannot put that aside to play happy families. No. And it's not a game we are very well equipped for, is it?
4: So again, just to circle back, I said it at the top of this conversation, I really understand Arthur's point of view. I do. And and he lays it bare there. And he, he that's it. That's his defense for why he acts the way he acts. He can't put on a happy family face because he's trying to arm his daughter for, for life in this world. For the same thing that Marion in her benign way has done at this lunch, there's a hundredfold times worse awaiting Peggy if she's not armed for it. But The point is, and I think what Arthur doesn't see or doesn't fully appreciate is he is seriously risking losing his daughter and his wife forever if he doesn't find a middle ground.
3: Arthur is being blinded by a a truly noble goal to raise this child right and wrong and all. and, And of course, wanting her to reach her full potential and carry on the family money and business like that's all makes complete sense. Arthur's not wrong. This is one of those beautiful. This is us truths, right? Both things can be true. He can be 100% right, and he also stands to lose his wife and daughter by acting like this. So, oh, Arthur, what a terrible position to be put in where, you know, what do you do? You're a dad. What do you do?
4: I don't know. I mean, I I don't think he sees... The, I don't think he sees the damage he's doing, right? I mean, obviously, his daughter and his wife have both walked out of the house within a minute of each other or she walked away from him within a minute of each other. But I don't think he really appreciates the lasting damage he's doing. And we only have so many chances before we can't undo the things we do. And that is a lesson, sadly, too many people learn too late. He needs to learn it sooner rather than later or It's all going to be for naught. all of his grand ambitions to arm and teach his daughter to survive in this world will fall on deaf ears because they won't be there will be no one there to listen. It's it's tough. It's tough. I mean, I, I think this episode is great for giving us a real understanding for both of their point of views. And Dorothy just wants to have cake with her daughter. She just wants her family to be together. She wants her daughter to be settled with that nice boy from Howard University. And, you know, and she's trying not to bring this baggage. She's trying to keep the mood light and friendly. She doesn't want her daughter to be walking out before they have birthday cake. And Arthur has his agenda and he will not be deterred from it to his detriment and to his family's detriment. That's tough.
3: It's hard because when you have the opportunity to speak to your child like that, and it's so few and far between, it's hard not to want to take that chance to start talking about more important things. Mm. But also, you're so right. Like, here here we are wanting to have a birthday lunch, and it's like, this isn't the time to bring this up. But if you're Arthur, you're like, yeah, well, when am I going to bring it up? She's not going to come here for a serious conversation, so I have to bring it up during these, like, you know, lighthearted birthday moments. But, ah, <laughs> you know?
4: I hope we keep exploring this. I I think Peggy just remains one of the best drawn characters on the show from her career standpoint, from the outsider nature of her being involved in the Van Ryan household and by its nature being involved in high society. She's got a natural disruptor role. So I, I like seeing the world through her eyes that way. But also now that we have the globe aspect to it and now that we've breached Brooklyn, we've gone to the Scotts household. Yeah. You know, you don't bring on, you don't hire these people to just do one or two scenes. I, I feel like we're going to get more time there. And I'm, I love it. I love the story that they're telling there. And I, I want to see how it plays out.
3: As an audience member, I have to say that that as much as I was like, oh, she's fun to have in like Aunt Agnes's house and, and to kind of be like this extra little voice for Marion and all that kind of stuff. I'm way more invested in what's going on in Brooklyn, what's going on at the Globe. I actually care a lot more about what Peggy's going to encounter as her obstacles when it comes to her career. Mm -hmm. when it comes to her her like you know dating future all these things like it's terrible but i wouldn't mind the gilded age like really shifting the camera and pivoting like way more that direction because it feels so much more alive and exciting and like there's things happening well the stakes going on
4: the stakes seem real and in and accessible in a way that other parts and other stories in the show
3: Well, it just feels so old fashioned when we're talking with Aunt Agnes and the Russells and High Society and Mrs. Astor. And it's all it's exciting in its own way, because I want to understand like what was but Peggy feels like what is and I want to know what is going on in the world as well. Not what was going on.
4: Uh, I agree. I agree. it's it's one of my favorite aspects of the show is her story and. and do you and, think that
3: they will beef that section up more and more as we go? Will it become like fifty fifty or will it always be sort of the smaller slice?
4: I don't know about 50-50. I think the fan support for the Peggy character will increase her profile in it. So I expect a lot more of attention paid to her career and the globe and and that aspect and watching her rise through, through society. Uh, I mean, I agree with you. I'm far more invested in her story than Marion's. For me, I'm watching the show. I love the show. And I actually like the Van Ryn stuff, and I love Agnes, and and I, I like her Beaumonts, and I like that they represent this inevitable end to the old money, right? They are the last bastions of this kind of thing. But for me, where I lean forward on my couch is the Russell's storyline, Bertha and George as a couple and, and in their individual pursuits, but also Peggy's story. I, I find it much more engaging engaging it's it's making me sit forward more well which i think is a credit to the acting but also to the writing i think they're putting a lot of authenticity into the story one thing we finally get now is a real good look at mrs chamberlain let's let's start with her secrets i i was very proud of myself i called this section of my notes chamberlain of secrets a little little play on harry (laughs) potter chamber of secrets
3: yeah you didn't have to say that part
4: well, some people are. You shouldn't like, have uh, to
3: explain every joke.
4: I, I, I'm not very funny. I need to explain my jokes.
3: No, <laughs> believe in us. No. <laughs>
1: Marion had to leave something for Mrs. Chamberlain, but don't tell.
0: What was the house like?
4: Let's just stop real quick. This is when Oscar is best and the most watchable. When he, like, lays back in his suit and he is, heavens, it's when Oscar is the best to watch. And th- these kinds of scenes make him utterly delicious to watch, uh, just plot and scheme and, and spill tea. That's a spinoff show worth watching. Oscar spills the tea with Ada. Like.
1: <laughs> Marion had to leave something for Mrs. Chamberlain. But don't tell...
0: What was the house like?
1: Very grand. And the pictures are simply fabulous. One of them had very good taste. She had the taste, the looks, and the brains. He had the money. Rather sharp for you, Aunt Ada. We shall have to stop talking about her when Mama comes in. What precisely has she done wrong? She lived in sin for years with old Chamberlain until his long-suffering wife finally died. Then he brought her to New York, and they pretended they'd only just met. I thought she was married before. Well, She says that to explain the boy. Her son... The son of them both. She only says her husband adopted him for the look of the thing. He is the spitting image of Chamberlain for a start. Is that why he lives in Chicago? He must have got tired of people whispering behind their hands every time he walked into a room. Aunt Ada, is this true? People think it's true.
4: I love that last line. That's where I want to start. This idea that no one actually knows, I guess, for sure. If it is true, it feels like it's true. But in the end of the day, that people think it's true is all that matters, right?
3: That's my concern with Turner. That's my whole thing is this bolsters that whole concern that like it doesn't have to have happened. It just has to be what people think is true. It's very worrisome. Now, this is a scandalous
4: story, to be sure, for this time period. You could see why this is scandalous. But earlier in the episode, when the, there's a funny scene where the jewelry box gets delivered and Marion, you know, refuses to say who it's from. And Agnes is like, I can't have something in my house if I don't know the provenance of it. Like, like as if it's like a cursed item from an Indiana Jones movie. Right, um, it's like and, the monkey's
3: paw. Uh, right, exactly. Like, <laughs>
4: You know, like, <laughs> like it's gonna like like poison them all or something. And so she leaves and then Ada follows her as Ada's want to do, follows Marion and gets the information out of her. You know, she says to be around Mrs. Chamberlain is to be contaminated by her. That feels even harsher, more harsh than than saying she her money is tainted from a couple of episodes. They're treating this woman like she is the head of the leper colony. It seems wild to me. We we thought she was going to be involved in like trafficking of humans. When you and I were talking <laughs> offline, the way they talk about her, that's what her crime feels like. Like truly, like illicitly earned money. No, it was a copper mine. He's a copper mine guy. Which go to our Facebook group because the copper mine that they reference is real. And it's a great little story about copper mines in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, we'll have some more information about that. But she fell in love with a guy and had an illegitimate child out of wedlock. But and then married. But then did marry the man whose child it is, contaminated, tainted. This woman is she is the burn of society. It's wild to me.
3: Yeah, but when you think about the idea that your name and your lineage is all you have and that especially for women money follows your name and your marriage, you have to understand that breaking the bonds of marriage, having kids outside of wedlock, all I mean all of this stuff is like the kiss of death. Mm who is your husband is all that matters so you know having this whole you you get this is like, the same conversation though i don't, even, I don't though. really have to explain you, it further you absolutely than that. But you, you for absolutely. my for our listeners right. though i think it's important to remember that that most specifically she's contaminated within the women's circle right. and within the women's circle being properly married and having a proper lineage is life or death
4: right but also let's not lose sight of this is in the same episode where we're talking about how had george decided to sleep with turner he probably would have been more in line with men of his status and power and no one would really blink an eye if he was keeping a mistress on the side not but really
3: turner would have no status right, and we're course. only speaking of the women you're 100 so right mrs chamberlain right. is turner
4: yes Yeah. That's that's, why
3: we don't like her. (laughs) That's
4: a good way to describe it. But, but you know what? Fuck y'all because I loved her. I love Mrs. Chamberlain and I want to go all the way back to Bloomingdale's. We talked already a bit about how despite Marion's obliviousness, Mrs. Chamberlain saves Peggy from the store's gaze and, and, and whatever bad things could have and maybe probably would have happened to Peggy for being in that store unattended by calling her over. But then Marion suggests that she'll pay for the items that Mrs. Chamberlain is looking to buy. And Miss Chamberlain says, no, 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 dear. We can't, possibly make this look like this was a planned shopping trip and that's not for mrs chamberlain's sake that's mrs chamberlain watching out for marion trying to keep her from harming herself the more mrs chamberlain seems to keep watching out for marion and 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 whispering the ways that she has to behave right go think back to the bazaar mrs chamberlain yes. comes by and and says you know i would love for you to call on me more but i know that's a no no and now i think you're going to pay a price for me even being seen here which marion does mrs chamberlain understands where she stands in society and what Mm -hmm. it would cost Marion to be seen with her are you still feeling confident about your secret mentorship and if so are you liking how the show is doling it out to us
3: yeah, I think I'm I think I'll triple down on that uh triple horn action because the secret is the key. I mean, that's in all caps. Like she's the secret mentor. Even even the fact that see this it's a killer because if Marion would pay attention, she would have noted everything that was going on with Peggy and would have understood a little bit more about beyond just this jewelry box, but she did pick up on the jewelry box portion because when it is delivered later, she does- does have the sense, due to the mentoring here, to not reveal who it came from. So in that sense, she does get it. But it's just, I wish she would learn more. You know, I wish she would have picked up on the Peggy part.
4: I dare say she only picks up on the jewelry box because it affects her life specifically and directly. And I think a lot of times Marion can only think so far as it affects her directly. What Peggy was being subjected to in that store wasn't affecting Marion. That's why it was outside of her gaze and her purview. Her showing up to Peggy's house, that's a problem for Peggy until she gets yelled at the end. It's not a problem for Marion other than being shown to be a little foolish with her used boots in the bag. You know, she doesn't get because she she's just this agent of chaos, you know, just kind of self-interested and self-motivated, but really not thinking about the larger scope of things. She only thinks so far as it affects her directly, which she does with the jewelry box. Now, Chamberlain is smart, right? Because she knows that jewelry box has to be returned. So she knows by sending it, she's risking Marion maybe getting in trouble with Agnes, but she knows that's going to lead to Marion going to her house, right? Did I read that wrong?
3: No, I think that that's correct. I think she knows that somehow that's going to allow some sort of open door to, and and even if it's just to just, you know, like to be so callous, let's say, right? And be like, oh, here's your jewelry box back, right? But she knows Marion's not going to be like that, But, but it can look that way. And so that's all good. She can like play within the rules
4: she's i mean she's this miss chamberlain she's playing 3d chess i love it but everyone's playing checkers
3: <laughs> she's about the triple horn
4: what's your what's your feeling of her as a character following the visit learning about the backstory of her widower husband and his copper mine fortune how he had more luck than birth but also that Him and his first wife had the money, but it wasn't until Mrs. Chamberlain that she taught him how to live. And that's where the art collection comes from. We learned a lot in their little visit together.
3: I mean, again, I have to temper it with all of the talk of Turner. Whenever she's like, I loved him so much, and I taught him how to live, and I taught him how to like enjoy the world. I mean, isn't that exactly what Turner said she was going to do, too? So some of my part is like I'm tempering some of what she says because it would have sounded really good had we not had Turner in the same episode, right? Mm -hmm. If you just took what Chamberlain said, I'd be like, ooh, this is hot business, and I love it, and I'm all on board. But... mm, Interesting, right? I don't think this was any type of accident that they had these two women saying these types of words in the same episode. Are we making the assumption
4: that Mrs. Chamberlain was in service in the Chamberlain household? Or was she like a noblish woman, maybe from a lower birth? But was she a Mrs. Turner type? Because this is how Mrs. Turner describes it, like that she wants to rise from service and become the mistress herself. They haven't actually said, but I'm curious now if Chamberlain wasn't just a confident living inside the house.
3: I'm just saying, do you think it's on accident to have two women no, in I like don't. the same scenario? One, we're looking our nose, you know, down on. And the other one, we're like, oh, be nice to Mrs. Chamberlain. But really, she's just Turner. What, 40 years later? No, like mm, <laughs> maybe 20 years later. <laughs> but still, like, I don't know. I'm not sh- I'm not sure. I like Mrs. Chamberlain.
4: You like the Degas also. I know you were a fan of uh, yeah, the Degas did. paintings. Yeah, I I pointed
3: out all that stuff to you. I was like, hey, look. Um, I enjoyed a lot of the art. I enjoyed her worldliness, you know, that she had she had, had all these experiences and that she truly was lonely and loved her husband and, and all of those things. It was important for us to get her backstory finally and understand where she was coming from. Turner's crappy storyline over here really put a ziggy cloud over all of this for me and i'm sad that that happened because had that not it would have really made me still like chamberlain and now i'm a little bit more suspicious of her but i
4: think that's probably you're right though the, sh- the show is smart <laughs> right because How smart because it's it's showing uh, you know oh you think mrs chamberlain is great well meet mrs chamberlain 20 years you know hence with with this turner it's really smart
3: and how much we dislike Turner and being like, what a snake, what a everything, right? Like, we have no problem describing her that way. And then we're like, oh, why can't they just ease up on Chamberlain?
4: Right. No, you're making <clears throat> an excellent point.
3: I think we should be, be careful. We should be watch watchful of this situation.
4: Beyond losing Sad Pumpkin, the the saddest, most bedraggled looking dog ever in the history of television. Oh
1: my god!
4: Ada was a little sharp in this episode when it came to matters of love. She's sharp. I mean, I think Marion even calls her in a couple played where Oscar is spilling the tea. She refers to Ada as being sharp. But then you have this conversation where Ada and Marion, and Marion maybe pokes too hard at Ada and her love and her heart. But I'm curious what your take is Follow it. Let's listen to this clip and let's talk about Ada and her love life and her opinion on love.
1: Surely you intend to marry a gentleman? I will marry a gentleman. Is that enough? For me, maybe, but not for Agnes. Did you ever come close to marriage? There was once someone whom I was taken with. But he did not meet your grandfather's high standards. The point is, did he meet yours? Well, I was very young. Do you think you should have married him anyway? Do you think you would have been happier? That's rather a cruel question. I I didn't mean it to be. You think me a weaker person than Agnes, and maybe I am. But even I know that marrying beneath oneself is no guarantee of happiness. Surely you intend to marry a gentleman. I will marry a gentleman. Is that enough? For me, maybe, but not for Agnes. Did you ever come close to marriage? There was once someone whom I was taken with. But he did not meet your grandfather's high standards. The point is, did he meet yours? Well, I was very young. Do you think you should have married him anyway? Do you think you would have been happier? That's rather a cruel question. I I didn't mean it to be. You think me a weaker person than Agnes, and maybe I am. But even I know that marrying beneath oneself is no guarantee of happiness.
4: Maria just can't get it together in this episode. She's, She's taking all of her allies and just setting them on fire.
3: Yeah, I have to say, I do appreciate the distinction between a gentleman and a gentle man.
4: Oh, me too. I loved My it. My heart kind
3: of went like, mm. <laughs> because, gosh, they've pointed out that so many of their gentlemen are actually bad guys. Finding a gentle man would actually be fairly, very good for Marion. I I think she needs that. She is so underestimating Aunt Ada and and everything that's going on with her and and. Man, to just when you're talking to somebody who is Ada's age and not married and try to kind of act blase about love, I I really Marian when you say that she's just blowing up all her I mean But remember remember the first
4: episode when she says when Ada drops like a great nugget and Marion says so wise Aunt Ada
3: <laughs> Yes, like yes, she yes. was patting but her on the head yeah, but right very. but that isn't
4: that I mean she's being mm-hmm. the same kind of way this is not your girlfriend this is not someone that you're better than in fact this is one of your betters and you're treating her this way I, I don't know she takes a lot of liberties and makes a lot of assumptions because I she think is that's thinking
3: it in a nutshell what you just right. said is so important because even people's different demeanors like she may not understand why Ada has a has a more quiet Uh, for for lack of better words, submissive type of a personality, but she doesn't know their life circumstances. She doesn't understand how this is all worked out. And so to think that behind that could not lie an intelligent, wise woman who wants love, who wants all these things like is like, boy, Marion, you really sell people short.
4: And there's also a naivete on Marion's part, knowing that Agnes married Mr. Van Ryn out of necessity for the, the family and not for love and paid a price for that decision so she knows that so she can't act like she doesn't know that that is a way of the world and part of the assumption she's making here also i think exhibit some of this naivete that we keep talking about that even for someone new to this world seems a little much Marion seems like a little bit much in in how do I she is to to make this assumption that uh, because they are of a lower class that that must mean they fall into the gentleman category instead of a gentleman category. It's it's very baby with the bathwater. It's making the assumption that if they have money, they must be a bastard. If they're poor, well, they're going to be sweeter. And and I'm happy Ada calls her on that and says, you're making assumptions that you don't know anything about. It's not unlike, I mean, Ada does it in a much more gentle version, but she's essentially telling her the same thing Peggy tells her later in the episode. You don't know anything. You just run your mouth, but you really don't know anything. And and to speak about Ada and her love life as if she does know is—I want to say—unforgivable. That's very dramatic, but it's it's uh, it's a major no-no. If I'm Ada, I'm going to be very hurt by this conversation and the liberties that my niece is taking with my heart and my feelings.
3: So my issue with Marion at this point is that it's one thing to come in like a blank slate. And that's 100% how we were describing her. I think we were saying an empty vessel. Unfortunately, now, somehow, the few things that she's managing to fill her little vessel with tends to be their obnoxiously rude and inconsiderate assumptions about people is what she's decided to fill herself with. Right.
4: Right. You're a sad spinster, and my colored friend is poor.
3: Right. and that's, and that's all I've managed to to put together here. And, and those things are like, I, I, Marion, like like it's really making me wonder about her. I was okay with blank slate. I'm not okay with prejudice and and just just general inconsiderate thoughts about everyone else.
4: I I mean, I will say, and I did note, this is a shift in Ada's point of view, though. This you're better off sticking to the 400, to Ward McAllister's 400, to find love. That is different. and And I was thrown a little bit that Ada seems to now actively be discouraging Mr. Rakes, where up until this point, I mean, she even defended him a bit to Agnes. And for sure, Agnes shut her down, right? Is that I think that's the conversation where Agnes says, do we need to go upstairs and have another conversation about, you know, the way things work kind of thing. But it is seeming like Ada is saying to her that you need to make... An Agnes-like sacrifice, maybe not to a cruel man, but that you need to maybe find the most gentle man within the gentlemen. That your 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 school of fish, your pool of available men, is truly limited to this four hundred. And by all means, go find the gentlest of them, but right. it still has to be one of these gentlemen
3: again, we're going back to the life and death of who you marry, you know, and how this all works and and the societal rules that Marion, unfortunately, while she wants to think things are silly, she doesn't understand that like when we're talking about paupers and talking about, you know, being buried in a potter's field, like she doesn't get how cutthroat these decisions actually are. And she doesn't understand her own
4: family. I mean, you said it perfectly, and I just want to take it a little bit further. You said that she doesn't understand the life circumstance of Ada and Agnes. She really doesn't. She only has these little snippets that she's learning about. But we know she doesn't understand her own family at all. She doesn't know what her situation was with her father. She's had a whole lesson in who her father really was in the way he screwed his sisters and screwed their family by selling everything. It's a lot of hubris on her part to to be speaking about any of these women's lives that they have lived. They've lived three, four times the amount of life that Marion has lived, happy and sad, and a lot of sad, unfortunately. And so it's kind of crazy. You don't know anything, Marion. You, you didn't even know your house was rented, you know, and you're going to you're going to sit here and try and tell Ada that her life would have been better had she married a lesser man versus live a single life under her sister's roof. That's a huge assumption, even if she's right, that maybe Ada would have found happiness with Cornelius Eckert III, but been poorer. That's not Marion's place to say Certainly not say out loud, not out loud to her aunt.
3: And who are you to poke somebody who that that decision is done and gone? Right. I mean, all you're doing is being mean at that point to be like your life could have been better.
4: Right. What that, are you doing? I think like, about how shitty your life
3: is, Aunt Ada. <laughs> right. Like, that's so cruel. And I understand she's trying to say it in comparison to herself. Like, don't make me make decisions right. the way you I don't want to wind up I like you. It.
4: She's saying I don't want to wind up like you or like Agnes. That's what she's saying here. She's like, I don't want to marry a cruel man and be like Agnes, nor do I want to be alone at the expense of having married a poor person and been happy like you chose to do, obviously, Aunt Ada. That's what she's saying here. She's like, I don't want to be like either of you. You both took the extreme and I don't want to do it. That's
3: fucked up. (laughs) <laughs> well, especially when you're you're very much relying on the kindness of these two women <laughs> yes. to even exist, you know, have right. not just a place to live, but a place in society. You know, you're not sitting on the train platform all alone, you know, withering away somewhere. Why are you trying to judge so harshly all these other people? That's what's bugging me. Blank slates don't get to walk around with the judgment stick. Right. Put it away. If you don't know what's what, then just admit that and stop trying to assume you know everything.
4: Right all of all of her all of her vats are empty except for her judgment. She is filled to the brim with judgment. <laughs> and exactly. and and opinions and opinions on how life should be. I don't know that she knows enough to say how life should be. And you know some of the worst people to ever be around are the ones that don't know what they don't know. So they just go around spouting their opinions that are based on nothing. Those are some of the most infuriating people to be around. I could see Peggy feeling like Marion is a long day. I could see Ada writing in her diary and be like, dear diary,
3: she may not be intentionally
4: malicious, but my niece is a bitch.
3: And then Agnes would just say, no, exactly.
4: Uh, before we get to talk to you about Mr. Rakes, who is who is the one who is prompting all of this consternation on Marion's part, uh let's head to the Academy of Music, Caroline, because we have a yes. we have a night of music.
3: First of all, I have to say that Mrs. Russell's gown and jacket, like her, her cape. Kind of whole thing going on there. Oh my God. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous.
4: It made me feel things. I'm not going to lie. Shut up. It was Did it a, really? It was a full hubba hubba moment. I was. It
3: was beautiful. Into
4: it. I was into the dress. She comes out and I was like, damn. But then she puts on the maroon cloak and I was like, holy shit. This whole thing really works for me. It's I got to so tell beautiful. you. I mean, I, Carrie Coon, quite the smoke show. I, I'm not afraid to say it.
3: So Miss Kuhn is pregnant throughout this the filming of all of this, and I think that the filming of this exact scene, my guess is she's probably showing quite a bit because of the way that they shoot over her head from behind, and then she's wearing the giant coat. So it was very tricky. You never saw a profile. It was all very just look here, look here and look here and we've I did, hidden I her.
4: Didn't even know that she was pregnant. So Oh
3: yeah, this entire series. Oh. Well, that's wild to me. Bam. Yeah, I,
4: yeah I, I, that outfit was that dress. Uh, the one of our community members in the Facebook group is doing a uh, best dressed every week for the characters, like who wore best kind of thing, best dresses. Uh, this dress has just been. Birth
3: is gonna win.
4: I, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there have been some fantastic outfits that we've seen on the show so far. This one just literally, like, I, I, my mouth opened. I, I was, I was pretty uh, jaw dropped. it. I am so.
3: really smiling at that. That yours. That you. You were so taken in.
4: I was, I was, and then they put the coat on. I well, maroon's one of among my favorite colors, and so whenever I get to see a nice maroon on TV, when they classed a and around, I was like, and it was so long, it was, it was bold. It was it, there's no other word for it. It was just bold. It she is a walking exclamation point in that outfit, and
3: I'm 100%. here for it. Percent, yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh,
4: so we're, we're fundraising for Clara Barton and the Red Cross, uh, at the Academy of Music in this fine evening. I was happy that the Red Cross was brought up here and it, came, and it played into the plot a bit, uh, which we could talk about in a second with Bertha and George and, and Clay. But I like that we're keeping this Red Cross going as one of the charities that will be a focus on one, because it's realistic. It's real. And I always like when we mix in the real with the fiction, but it's a nice way to keep it going, even without Clara Barton appearing in this episode. They're keeping that thread alive. Like this is part of the world now. What was more shocking to you? One, well, let's talk about the fact that Bertha and Marion are both in the Fane's box. Smart mm-hmm. political move on on Aurora's part to have Marion there as well as Bertha.
3: Yes, I think so because it kind of like it kind of watered down the fact that Bertha was there. It seemed like she was inviting all the news.
4: Uh, it it tampered it down, but I think it also gave Aurora a reason that she wouldn't maybe necessarily have to talk to Bertha, right? She gets I like to, that. yeah, I mean she gets to smoke screen she herself, got a right? Because Marion is a de facto member of society, but in in many ways, in most ways, is as new as bertha is and bertha even says you must know all of the people here and marion's like oh no i'm a i'm a brand new i'm a brand new deer just born you know
3: i'm a yearling <laughs>
4: exactly like i, I have my spots still on my fur
3: <laughs> but um,
4: uh yeah but i like aurora and uh, charles they take the back seat in the box and we will put some stuff up there's great information about the academy of music out there the academy of music but also the conductor that we were told is conducting john He was very much a real conductor. He was actually one of the first guest conductors of the Boston Symphony Orchestra at the end of their first season, which is what this is. So the Boston Symphony Orchestra was founded in 1881, and they had some guest conductors come and do performances at the end of their first season, which would have been spring, early summer of 1882, which is when we're taking place here. So really fun. He's one of he's one of the founding, most important American composers of the late 19th century. So and again, nice little side feature there. We're going to have some more information up on the Facebook group about it.
3: Love all the world building, doing an excellent job of like keeping us in this period.
4: We would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that Mr. Rakes has found his way into the next door box of Mrs. Henry Skirmerhorn. Skirmerhorn should set off bells because Mrs. Astor is a Skirmerhorn. Before she married Willie Backhouse Jr. Aster, Aster Jr., she was born Caroline Skirmerhorn. So uh,
3: Tom Rakes. You said that I was like, yes.
4: Tom Rakes has rocketed his way up in literally into a box at the Academy of Music surprised. Is it, is it believable that he would be moving so fast through society that he would be there?
3: Well, I mean, he seems like he's absolutely hustling to get into these different boxes. So, yeah, it makes sense to me. My goodness, hello, he's proposing marriage. Like, this dude does not drag his feet, right? He was, like, running as fast as he can towards society. So, no, it wasn't a surprise. I think what was a surprise was the play between the two of them, between Marion and Rakes, when it was like, okay, he comes over. Oh, he, it's all cool. And then... The realization was so slow on Marion's part of, like, that he is supposed to be sitting in the other box, like, a like a, you know, basically, like, He's a, a date. date. Yeah. Yeah. But Marion didn't get that for, like, a really long time. Right. It was, like, at the very end, she looks over, and then she's like, huh? Huh? Ah. Long- <laughs> like she didn't get it.
4: Well, just like deer are slow to get out of the way of the headlights of a car before it gets ran into. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's, you know, when she Does so- she have
3: any right to act so jealous and big-lipped?
4: No, but of course, right? Isn't This is a little romantic tropey, right? Where she, all along, even to her aunt, she has said, I don't necessarily have any romantic interest in Mr. Rakes, but I don't want to be told that I can't hang out with him and go for walks with him. This is the thing. This is going to be the insane Exciting event though, which is going to make her realize I loved him all along when I saw him in the horn box, and I realized I might lose him.
3: He was full skimmerhorn. <laughs> he was he was being
4: horned. Exactly. So I mean, a couple things come out of this. One, this is setting up for a classic. Mister Ricks is going to find a quote unquote worthier woman, right, with the name and the time more so than a Marion Brooke who has a tangential name and no money. I, it would be very realistic for something to come out of that date in the Skermerhorn box that why wouldn't Mr. Rakes? He's being – yes, he's he's professing love and his marriage and stuff, but he's getting nothing back in return from Marion, not really, whether it's her own fault because of her aunt's uh, – whether it's her aunt's fault or her own indecision and not knowing her feelings, which are both reasonable. But I think it's equally reasonable to think that Mr. Rakes is going to explore the world and she's going to have to bear witness to that as he goes out on these dates. It's part of how you get into society is you have to use what your mama gave you.
3: She did not realize how it would feel to be witnessing this, however. But uh,
4: doesn't that feel like a I don't know how real it is in the world, but it seems like very much like a television and movie device of I never knew how I felt until I saw him with another woman. Doesn't that yeah. feel like where we're, we're, we're setting up here? Or certainly her, as long as it has a happy ending, you know that she gives at the end. Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was that actually made me laugh. <laughs>
4: well, it's gonna have a happy ending almost, in the Skirball Horn box like Marian, for sure. Marion,
3: Marion, I kind of want you to do your um, Marion. Hey. No, 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 not that one. I kind of want you to do the Sam Elliott with her, like the Marion. I think she needs that action. She doesn't need the, she doesn't need Mary. She doesn't need that bit. That's like love. She needs like the Marion. Like Mar- you're just Marian, freaking out of it.
4: <laughs> you're, like, you're like a deer in the headlights, Marion.
3: Exactly. You,
4: you, you speak without being, <laughs> knowing what you're talking about, Marion. Exactly. He's getting his girl horns real good, Marion.
3: Everyone's got to be looking at her with these eyes like, oh, Marion.
4: Can I tell you what I was thinking about? Because Bertha, a smart woman who is much quicker on the uptake than Marion, is asking her about Mr. Rakes. And I dare say impressed at how far he's come in such a limited amount of time. And now she does say it's going to be hard for him to continue to keep up without money. But what's the one thing... Bertha and her family has in spades money. Mm
3: -hmm. And also an unattached girl.
4: And an unattached girl and a guy Mm -hmm. who knows how to hustle and do all the things you need to do to get accepted into society. I, If I'm Marion and she's way too slow to pick this up right but bertha on behalf of gladys is someone marion definitely has to be aware of now for mr rakes i would not be shocked within the next couple episodes if we see tom rakes accepting a dinner invitation to the russell household and being introduced to their daughter because remember what he said outside you know in madison square park last week i have nothing now but my prospects are good everyone loves a lawyer lawyers make money He's not going to have any problem making money and climbing the social standing. Bertha is going to be much quicker to pick that up than Marion.
3: So I'm 50-50 on this. I think that it's a fun game if she does bring over Rakes and has him for dinner and can be dutifully impressed with his social climbing skills. But remember, we've discussed this quite a bit. She expects the counterpart to Gladys to be adding to the fortune. And so while, yes, it's good that he is a fellow go-getter, she may align herself somewhat with him, but I don't know that she's going to be willing to have that be Gladys' actual partner. It's a mm. fun game, don't get me wrong, but... I think she I, sees kindred spirit there. She, I mean, I totally think she does. But remember, she wants Gladys is to marry some sort of solidifying force Mm. in society that's true that's true and that's not what rakes brings so at least at this point now she may change her tune in fact you know she may go for the i'd rather a gentleman than a gentleman right she might go for that at some point but i think that it would be fun for her still to bring Rakes over there and start mixing and matching families. I think this is going to be a very good <laughs> something to get Marion, certainly. And I all, feel uh, like. Hit her. Well, I also feel
4: like Rakes coming over, starting to come over to the Russell house where he would be welcomed versus yes. their Van Ryan house where he is not. And Marion says, You should call on me again. Uh, I don't think Agnes has changed her mind about whether or not Mr. Rakes is, has, uh, should be calling on Marion at the house. So I thought that was pretty. Bolder, Marian, to say you should call on the house again because things have changed so much maybe maybe she's seeing that in such a short amount of time he really is skyrocketing up the that long ladder you know the long ladder that that bertha is just starting to climb it seems that you know tom rake's found an elevator for that ladder but i think it also Allows us to put Marion back together with Larry and have them appear in situations together, which was always the much more intriguing plot line for me for Marion.
3: Yes, I knew that that was going to be thing. And when you think about it, if Rakes is with Gladys and Larry's with Marion, that's actually a pretty fun foursome, right? To like be hanging out and doing stuff and having conversations like that's actually pretty cool. No, <laughs> no, I agree. Agnes. I mean, I
4: think Agnes, I think Agnes would not think, <laughs> would not be okay with that for so, But think I think,
3: that think Mr. Rakes is going to find his way into the social circle with this group more and more. Whether, whether, absolutely. I don't know exactly how it's going to go, but I do agree that Bertha is a really great little. She's got her eyes out, man. She's, she's an opportunity.
4: She is a hawk in a, in a beautiful red dress. So I think you know the thing with Mr. Rakes is. He is going to find his way through and, and, and clearly knows how to navigate. I mean, even the story of how he wound up in the box, you know, roller skated into a guy in that made Central. me
3: laugh so hard. I mean, I know that roller skating is a thing, but it's just the idea of like adult men, lawyer roller skating. <laughs>
4: Around. I can't think really of roller skating. Left. I can't think of roller skating in Central Park without thinking of the animated series on Apple TV plus uh, Central Park. There's yes. a fantastic <laughs> fantastic scene and song about roller skating in a park. Uh, you guys should go check it out. It's, it's fun.
3: It makes me think of Maisel and like all of the stuff with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel about how during like the 60s it was still okay for adults to do things like Simon Says and Hula Hoop and stuff like that. And then like, and I'm sure roller skating and all these things, but it's so funny how There's so many activities that have been relegated to just children, you know, and that it would be so weird if you were like, I was just social skating today, Caroline, just socially, when I ran into another lawyer, like, I would really, really have to pick myself up off the floor. Like, that's a really funny idea.
4: I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, so I'm very interested to see the wrinkle and wrench that Mr. Rakes is. So, you know, I think as far as Rakes goes, he's going to find that he's going to have a lot more opportunities besides Marion. So it will be interesting to see how long he stays so pot committed to her as he is now. I mean, his stated reason for being here and for all of this maneuvering that he's doing is to strive to make himself worthy in the ants' eyes. But you have to imagine at some point he's going to be like, oh, by working on A, I've also opened up plans B, C, and D for myself. I don't know, Mary Marion's gonna find that she she may have to work hard to keep Mr. Rakes uh if in fact that's where she decides she wants to go. But who knows? But maybe maybe it propels her to Larry again, who who's not doing anything. He is not at the Academy of Music tonight. He it's is not awkward, well, he's not being skirma horned. So
3: we still haven't like a, a proposal hanging out there like so awkward
4: very awkward. How very awkward.
3: awkward would it be to go out on a date when you have a proposal <laughs> to another woman? I mean and he's just so smiling like hey girl like I'm just over here in this box like oh my god who in knows? modern day this would be like so insane who knows
4: maybe he's also a baby deer. maybe Tom and Marion are more meant for each other than we give them credit for
3: do you think he's proposing over there in the other box I mean I, I, he might be maybe
4: I, I, more likely he's telling them in the other box about how he proposed to the girl in the other box be I mean, oh like gosh, this is so, so funny true. I the girl over there I proposed to her like, it's just out there. We were watching the Statue of Liberty torch hand. I got overmo- overwhelmed by the moment. Madison no, Square Park in the summer is beautiful.
3: I fell in love with her back in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Please. one time I
4: met her. I waved my fee. I waved my
3: fee. Does that not speak volumes, everyone?
4: I turned down money. Y'all, bloodsuckers, <laughs> know all about that. Uh, what that must mean.
3: Exactly.
4: Uh, uh, before we leave, though, because we mentioned the Red Cross, I want to bring up. Because I think it's important. Let's put, uh, we're, we're going to our bulletin board.
3: Okay, I've got it out. I'm ready. I've got my a, little uh,
4: push pin. We've got our, our, our push pin notes bulletin board. There is mention in this episode by George and Clay. They're discussing a railroad accident in Cherny, Russia. Mm. Uh, This was a real railroad accident, unfortunately. It happened on July 13th, 1882, which is also a nice place setting. So we know where we are in time. We're in July now. July 13th, 1882, near Cherny, Russia, a train was derailed and more than 150 people were killed. The rail accident was deemed one of the 20 most serious accidents by death toll before 1953. So the show is not only giving us a nice placing for where we are in time because we've lost the thread about how much time has lapsed since the beginning of the show, but also uh, citing, again, a real event which would be of interest to a railroad magnet. And so, at least this really interesting conversation about the Red Cross, and I love that it's Bertha again, just showing how in sync her and George are about business and and all things business and society she's the one who suggests investing in the Red Cross clay picks up the thread says well that's win-win for us if there's no accidents then we're just benevolent if god forbid there is an accident with one of our railroads well we'll have the red cross that will be more than happy to come and help us in disaster relief that's what the red cross does interesting play setting i liked it because it brought up bertha helping george's business again but also i feel like it feels like foreshadowing or something to put on the old pushpin board to keep an eye
3: on As soon as they started talking about it and talking about taking out insurance and all that stuff, I was like, oh, Lordy, I hope they actually take out insurance. Because if they don't, this is going to be super bad because this definitely feels like something's about to happen.
4: Yeah. So let's just put a little push pin in that. Before we finish, I think we have to visit downstairs Intrigue now. A big part of Downton Abbey for me was that the downstairs life of the service of the servants in Downton Abbey were as much a part of the show as the upstairs. Now, 1883, the Gilded Age has... Not focused as heavily on the downstairs intrigue, but we've gotten little bits of information here and there, right? We had Mrs. Armstrong and her gambling debts. We have Mr. Watson, who's taking constitutions we learned in this episode. He's actually spying on someone named Mrs. McNeil. What was your take on that? Is former employee love that gone awry? Any any initial thoughts on who he's looking at on his walks?
3: My initial thoughts were love, love lost. That's definitely where I was going. And I I didn't feel anything negative. I, I really did feel like it was like he was just like trying to like see what's the haps currently with her. That's how it felt. Did you feel anything negative or were you going towards the love side?
4: I know. For me, it definitely like he was at least in love with her if it wasn't mutual. In light of this conversation, though, I'm wondering if this is not a Turner Chamberlain situation, though, but one where he would left the house. Do you
3: think Watson was the Turner? A Turner, but one who maybe didn't do left, what she did. Left because he didn't want to be a Turner.
4: A noble Turner, if uh, if to turn <laughs> a, a phrase,
3: could have been a Turner, but didn't turned away.
4: Turner away. <laughs> Every now oh and God. then he goes for little walks and spies on Missus McNeil's love gone by. Oh my God! No sorry sorry agnes.
3: sorry i want agnes to like totally i feel like i need the button <laughs>
4: i, I am gonna send it to you so you have can it can
3: you send it to me because i think i'm gonna be all no
4: <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever but i want to ask you because i asked you about this when we first started the podcast
3: you are, you want to ask me and you're gonna ask me just ask me
4: i i got into a specific mr watson question but before i ask the more overarching question Yes. Or do you care do you care about the downstairs intrigue at all? because when we talked about this at the beginning of the episode of the series, you were i think of the opinion i don't really need it i don't know what they're going to do with it I'm curious now mm-hmm. that we're getting more of it because this episode had a bunch how you're feeling about it.
3: Okay, so I understand because I have watched some Downton Abbey, so I do understand the importance of the downstairs and everything that's going on with the help, if you will. You know, I'm totally willing to learn more about the inner workings of this group of people. I mean, I think they're fascinating. Everything, like, with, say, like, Bridget and Jack, that was very shocking. A very, Mm. like, whoa, I did not expect it to go this direction. I know other people were saying, like, well, maybe, Bridget, it doesn't, like, guys maybe that's the issue and then when it turned out no this turns out to be an abuse um history i was like oh my gosh, like I literally was like clutching my pearls because I was like, oh God, Bridget, like I'm so sorry all this is happening and what a complete twist of like, I didn't expect us to have such a deep and difficult storyline for Bridget and Jack. I thought that was just going to be something kind of fun, you know, something extra like getting getting a chance to see a little bit of like being able to go out and, and, and see what, you know, what's recreational, you know, activities looking like these days and stuff like that. Like I thought they were just going to add some color and stuff so to actually give her this much more different Difficult and complicated storyline. I was really surprised. I'm completely here for all the extras. There's a lot of different characters that I do care about that are part of the downstairs. I, I wasn't expecting this one. I mean, what did you think about Bridget and and turning out to have this abuse storyline?
4: I also thought it was going to be a thing, but that it was going it was going to be a sexuality and orientation plotline. So this was a surprise to me furthering the surprise was the fact that it seems that she doesn't bear the ill will towards – we have to assume the father, right? She never actually says that we can hear it was her father committing the abuse. But the fact that it was – she was saying it was her mother downstairs letting it happen – let's assume it was the father or some male was abusing her she doesn't bear the ill will towards him says he's he was mad her anger and her vitriol is actually at her mother who she says was evil who sat downstairs and let it happen that was a twist i also wasn't expecting so it was kind of a double twist that her anger would be pointed towards the mother because we don't get that a lot right her point of view is not when you hear a lot on television or in in media the the one who did it is the one who usually gets the thrust of the anger it's an interesting for her to say my mother knew what was going on and did nothing about it so that's where her anger lies i thought that was interesting it also signals to me that we are going to learn more about this this is too heavy a storyline for them just to drop and not discuss yeah. again so i think the show is also signaling buckle up we're going to learn more about it, at least bridget if not the whole downstairs staff.
3: For me, my experience, um, it it is not uncommon to have a lot of anger towards the people who knew it was happening and and let it happen.
4: Right. But portrayed Um, on TV, portrayed, though, in movies and television, though, I feel like you don't see. that, That was my point was, again, the show subverting what normal tropes are that we see on shows.
3: Did you watch Landscapers?
4: Yes, I did. Remind me of what you're talking about in Landscapers, though.
3: She completely blames her mother for sitting by. Oh yes, yes. Foster. Oh yeah.
4: Okay. Oh, do, 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 do. Right, 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 right. Yeah, she does end up killing both of them. though.
3: <laughs> but mostly, the anger is towards her mother.
4: That's true. She. That's true. She doesn't for blame letting them. it
3: happen. Yeah. No. So that's the mm. whole thing. I. I'm. You know. I don't know. I've maybe it's a British
4: thing, right? But I mean, so. maybe
3: I don't know. I've I've definitely seen it before. I mean, I think it depends on what your own like history is with everything is too. I think maybe you see it through different eyes, but um, and and maybe women see it different than men too. Yeah, I look forward to learning more about Bridget and finding out what's going on. And, and hopefully there'll be some healing and maybe her and Jack can still have something there. Because I, I think Jack is a very cute little little tiny little side character, a silly character.
4: Uh, and also, again, just the I like uh, the use of Mrs. Armstrong, you know, where she, maybe she'll be a healing female role model in Bridget's life too, and just deepening those bonds.
3: She felt that way. Her compassion felt very sincere and very. It was right at the surface. Like I mean, she was. She wasn't just like, "Oh, that's too bad." She was like, "Oh my God, I'm really sorry." She felt it. really. Her face
4: fell when she heard the whisper. A like
3: thousand percent. Yes.
4: Know, which is how I mean, I, I would hope that anyone would react in that situation. But yeah, she seems like a good ally. To, she seems like she has ample empathy and sympathy. So hopefully that that's a good healing thing for Bridget to be able to lean on and confide. I mean, she's already taken a first step in being able to, in confiding in her, you know, hopefully, Jack doesn't take her reticence in the wrong way or in such a negative way, because that would be doubly harsh on both of them, you know, if he was to lash out. But he does seem like a sweet kid who's just trying to be happy and get along for as long as he can, as we all are.
3: (laughs) Right. I
4: gotta tell you, one of the people I felt worst in this episode was old Mr. Church over at the Russell's house.
3: Oh my goodness. That entire thing between him and Bannister, I was like, what is happening with this entire thing? And they just kept going from scene to scene. Oh, you do it this way? Mm, yeah. Let's listen to yeah. the two
4: clips and then talk about it a bit. Because cause I'm not, because I'm curious. Oh, just play the clips. Well, I'm curious if it's as black and white as it seems.
2: Monsieur Bodaz, Kingdom. Monsieur, je suis heureux de vous rencontrer. Ah, bonjour. Hmm. May I? Uh, bien sûr. Yeah. Uh, those are tomorrow's menus. I write out the final list and madame approves it before she goes up to dress. I see. Heavens, chicken soup for luncheon. That's not something with which I'm familiar. Chicken soup? Soup at luncheon. Or is it chilled? no. It's hot. Oh, well. Every day you learn something. What's this? Trifle? Don't you like trifle either? It's not that exactly. We would think of it as a nursery dish. Still, one man's meat is another man's poison, as they say.
4: (laughs) Or is it chilled? No, it's hot. (laughs) <laughs> and what he calls it a
3: nursery dish I come know. on bannister
4: i like you dude the but babies
3: eat that <laughs> i He's was like, like oh, i'm oh. sorry i didn't realize
4: the russell was running a nursery here
3: yeah that's that was bad i mean that whole interaction i mean i was like damn this would be like killing me and all of the worry though that like a church took into his heart like he was like Ugh. oh yeah because we're not like, done yet i'm so horrified
4: the tour moves to the upstairs
2: Are there surprises here, too? No, no, nothing important. Please, I'd like to hear. I would not lay the fruit knife and fork. They arrive with the fruit plate and the finger bowl. The pudding spoon and fork would not be above the place, but here. What is this? It seems to have got lost. It's an oyster fork. It sits on its own spoon. Does it indeed? Fancy that. And coloured glasses. How festive. Do you not use coloured glasses? No. And we set them in a square, the English way, and not in a line. I wonder, they don't find themselves drinking their neighbour's wine. (laughs) Oh. But of course, there's no right or wrong about these things. They're simply a matter of taste. And Mrs. Van Rijn's taste is not the same as Mrs. Russell's. So it could appear.
4: Now, here I want to focus on the end of there. I, it's a matter of tastes. Now, it could have easily been good taste, bad taste. But that's not how Bannister approaches it. He says it clearly the Russells and the Van Ryn's have different tastes. So I'm curious if... Is Bannister just peacocking and putting down the Russells here? Or is he just being a gleeful observer of people do things differently? Who knew?
3: I want to think it's it's more the second where he's like, huh? Because you know, I think that they rarely have an opportunity to go into other people's houses. When was the last time Banister saw someone
4: else's kitchen or or exactly living, tiny and room got an here.
3: opportunity to like walk through their life and see how things are done? And so he didn't seem malicious about no. the way because if he d- if he wanted to just be snotty, he didn't have to explain himself. Like he didn't have to say, "Oh, well, right. we do this and we put it this way." He could have been like, "Not the way I do it." That that's the snide remark just being snotty. Oh my god, when, he's,
4: when he says what's this? And he explains it's the oyster fork, it sits on its own spoon, he's like ha, ha, oh, heavens! You know, like he's like almost amused. He's like, Yeah, I, but when
3: he says it does, like that, mm, see, now that was actually mean. Because that, that, that was his, oh, a sp- it does have its own spoon to sit on, does it now? Like that part, mm, I'd say that's condescending. But right. the rest where he actually like explained or he's like, no, we we don't use colored glasses and we don't we we would Health do it in a line systems. and all those things. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was making me laugh. <laughs> no, we asked we asked
4: Agnes if we could do colored glasses. She, she said, no. Uh, <laughs> oh, too, festive. Oh, that's too festive.
3: That's very funny. Yeah. I mean, I do appreciate this English versus American styles and that, you know, it's okay to do things more in an American style. You're from America. You're, you're, you know, this is your family. It, it's going to be interesting to see who budges. Well, like, are we going to yeah. see a colored glass on Agnes's table or will we see all clear glasses on the Russell's table? Like, I'm good. I'm wondering who's going to budge a little bit.
4: When the show first started, I talked about how the downstairs represent the extreme views of their masters and mistresses upstairs, and and I think the show has done a good job of of showing us that that, that they, for the most part, take their employers positions to heart in a in a strong way and i think you're seeing that in this scene so it was interesting to me though maybe not a surprise that church is still worrying about this later on in the episode and he says he says out loud i wonder which one mrs astor prefers i have to find out He knows what the Russell's mission is. He knows where Bertha wants to get to. I love that Church is so invested, not only for his own professional pride, maybe even less or not even so much at all about his professional pride, as much as what is the setting that is going to make Mrs. Astor happy with Bertha and George's settings upstairs. I don't want to offend them or embarrass them in any way. I love that. I love that devotion and that loyalty and the commitment to the cause. That whole house, except for Turner, is committed to furthering Bertha's goals. I love that. I love it so much.
3: (laughs) I'm looking forward to learning more about the downstairs. I, you know, it's not, it's not an aspect of shows that I have typically watched. So to be able to get this, you know, extra view into the way that each household does things and why they do things and get it is like you said, like that sort of inner workings of the, of the master's brains. I think it's fascinating.
4: One more little pushpin, just because we got an introduction into this one, to this character in this episode. But I, I suspect we're going to see more with the sacking of Gladys's governess. We mm. were introduced to a maid currently in the Russell household, whose name is Adelheid. She's played by Erin Wilhelmy. Definitely seems to me she's going to be trying to scheme her way into a governess position or into the next nanny position for Gladys, and which would be a huge. Elevation and promotion over her current status. Any initial thoughts there, or just putting it up on the board for to keep watch on?
3: She was oh so eager, Mike. That's my concern. <laughs> she she was playing it a little too like, ah, I'm so excited, and I wanted to be like, you gotta simmer a little bit, chick. Nobody's yes, gonna give you a promotion if you're gonna be that eager.
4: But her name was also Adelheid, and I love that name. So <laughs> we're giving her really.
3: A pass. I do,
4: I do. If my if my son had been a girl, he would have been named Adel lied so
3: oh really yes
4: yes 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 spelled <laughs> differently than here but uh yeah anyway I'll, I'll tell you one thing this show has a lot of plates spinning uh, it i mean does. we've been talking a long time and i feel like we probably could have gone even longer but just to get through all of these characters and all these plots most of which i find very interesting like really keep me engaged just takes a lot to break this whole show down
3: well, I'm super excited that it's been greenlit for season two. So I know that all of our listeners who don't get a chance to to scroll around on social media or haven't hit that up yet, season two is coming, you guys. So absolutely, you should dedicate yourself. Go ahead and spend the time. Invest in these characters because they're coming back for season two. This is Caroline.
4: And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. If you do, we'll maybe read one of your five star reviews that you leave for us, like this one from Marv Dory. Best podcast team. Always so much fun listening to these two. I love the opening credits too, Mike. I can't wait to see and hear the rest of the Gilded Age season. Thank you guys for breaking it down for me. Or this review from Ray the Nerd. Fun podcast, five stars. The hosts have a fun banter, and I love learning historical tidbits that inspire the show. Guys, Go leave us a five-star review. We may read it on air. Doesn't that sound like fun?
3: Thanks for listening. No.
4: Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.